Hey everybody, welcome back to Terminus, the gloomhaven of extreme metal podcasts. I am the death metal guy, aka Nurgle. No, not that Nurgle, the Nurgle from Warhammer 40k Nurgle. Oh, hell yeah. Okay, uh, <laughs> and I am the black metal guy, aka uh, Midnight Raccoon. <laughs> I have to deal with those all the time. Oh. <laughs> yeah. My, uh, yeah, my apartment building... Just- well, I'm right up. Uh, I'm right up against the woods in my apartment building, and we've got like a valet trash service. And there's a window of maybe 20 minutes where I can put my trash out before the raccoons get into it. And uh, they've been feasting on garbage for so many years. These are, you know, like industrial-sized Russian raccoons. You know, I uh, I'll like bungee cord the top of my trash can so they can't get into it. They'll just drag the whole thing into the woods like 30 feet. It's uh <laughs> <laughs> Nice. Bear size. They're they're pretty significant, man. Like uh and you know, sometimes I'll catch them out there and I'll just kind of clap and be like, "Hey, get get, get out of there, you little bandit." And then They'll just look at me. They'll just keep doing it. I have to get within, like, five feet for them to scurry away. They don't have fear anymore. Yeah. Yeah. They're, they're, they're bold creatures. But, yeah, no, they can get big for sure. Um, I'm just glad you're supplying the local raccoons. <laughs> Unwillingly. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 sort of like uh, the uh, the Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone. I didn't really make the choice, but I guess they're going to have their commune here, and, you know, there we go. <laughs> Wait, Capitol Hill, do you mean... Do you was mean the it? one in, in Seattle? Yeah, did, the, the did Chaz. Did you even make an what autonomous was... zone in D.C.? Oh, no. no I, it was I, called I, something not, else. I, well, I thought it was called... It was like... It was C.H. I thought it was Capitol Hill, but I thought that referred to just a a, 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 a place in Seattle that was called that. Oh, I guess it. I guess it is. I sorry. When I thought of Capitol Hill, I thought of DC. Okay, fair enough. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Not yeah. that so Capitol. Autonomous <laughs> raccoons. Yeah, the, the uh, local autonomous raccoons. Um. All right, we've got a uh, we got a show, don't we? Uh, we're almost at the year mark, man. Exciting. Yeah. If, uh, <laughs> if if we can make it another week, we'll have accomplished something. Yeah, and then it will all fall Not apart immediately after that. But. Yeah. <laughs> all right. So uh, we've we've definitely got a weird show today, but for uh, Terminus Co-Prosperity Sphere, uh, I've got a little thing for us to listen to. So uh, last year uh, we did a review of a band called Trash, and I also did an interview with Zach, the vocalist of that band. Uh Zach, uh, he's a longtime friend of mine. He's got another band that he just started up recently. Um, it was uh, it was playing live actively. It's not kind of an internet project thing anymore. Uh, so this is a band called Collapser. Uh, they just put out their first EP called Devastation Path. Uh, I think like a month and a half ago, something like that. And uh, I'm interested to see what you make of it because uh, me and the band we both describe it as kind of like crossover grind but uh based on the things you said about trash i i want you to hear it and tell me kind of what you're hearing in this stuff so uh we'll just listen to uh the title track the opening the opening song devastation path
It's uh, it, it's very interesting because uh, you know when I first heard it, I was curious because it really is just kind of like it's 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 just kind of thrash with blast beats when you get down to it. Yeah, it reminds me of Morbid Angel, like yeah, like I could see that, like Morbid some of the alters like and alter shit. stuff. Yeah, like just the way that you you have the blast and then those sort of riffs that are sort of like cranking up by two chords every time. Yeah. Which, if you slow it a little down over the thrash beats, it becomes like a pedal point thrash riff. But mm -hmm. but Morbid Angel uses it to make those kind of like vertical architectural riffs. Um, but even yeah, the way they were guys, playing it had kind of that. Yeah, it definitely it's rhythm. got that effect. Well, it also um it also kind of reminds me of like almost like old Cogumelo stuff. You know, just that sort of like mm -hmm. falling over sense. itself with forward momentum quality. Yeah, and I mean, I, I, yeah, I think, like, I don't know, like, Dark Angel or something, creator a bit, but like a more kind of creator, but more death metal-y intervals, a little more brooding. Um, uh, yeah, it definitely feels like, uh, it definitely grinds, but in terms of the basic riffing elements, it definitely seems just like uh, super aggressive thrash. Um, if there's any crossover that actually sounds like that, let me know, because in my experience, I've found it always disappointing. Um, like <laughs> I, I, cross, I think if you... cro crossover was always like this kind of like bouncy, fun stuff that I just didn't get. I mean, if you go to if you go to some of the most aggressive stuff by like DRI or SOD, I can hear it. Hmm. I mean, well, SOD was cool. like speaking, speak English or die would be worth uh, going back to at one point. All right, fair enough. Yeah. All right, so uh, rundown for today. We got a kind of a weird setup because we basically ended up with uh, three albums that are all kind of working within the same vocabulary, like very closely, and uh, one odd man yeah, out. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so uh, <clears throat> starting off today. Uh, starting off, of course, with The Odd Man Out, is going to be the second full-length by Devoured from Indonesia, uh, titled The Curse of Sabda Palon, uh, which was released on Sadist Records uh, just this past week. Uh, Devoured, a band I've got a little experience with, who started as a brutal death band back in, you know, back in the uh, early 2000s, but now has completely renovated their sound, so... I was definitely excited to check that one out. 
And uh, following that, uh, we've got the newest record by the Czech band Inferno with uh, Paradigma, Phosphines of Aphotic Eternity, released on Debermer Morty, uh, which is, I, I think as far as kind of like arty black metal labels, they're probably one of my favorites. We definitely cover a lot from them. Um, yeah. Yeah, we do. So, uh... All right. Uh, yeah, so well, next. Um, yeah, go ahead. <laughs> oh no, did you have, did you have more to say? Sorry. Oh no, just uh, Inferno. You uh, may or may not be familiar with them. Very long running uh, Czech black metal band. Who again, uh, kind of tying it back to Devoured. Uh, I knew back in the day, but have substantially changed their sound over the years since I last listened to them. So I'm excited to dig into that. Word. And uh, for our listeners, that background noise was the raccoons. They have actually <laughs> they've, they've penetrated the death metal guy's security perimeter. Um, <laughs> I, I, I'm uh, jumping into the pillbox right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Alright, so after the break then, it will be uh, the new one uh, uh, by a band called Furnask. Uh, F-Y-R-N-A-S-K. Which is I think multi-country, but centered in Germany. Um, this is yeah. This is coming out on uh, Von Records, and the record is called Seven in Roman Numerals: uh, Colon Kenoma. When you hear a name like that, you know it has something to do with Orthodox black metal. And it does. <laughs> uh, but it's a uh, different, you know, bit more of a. Uh, a sort of pagan mysticism theme rather than the usual uh, unholy cosmic serpent devour my soul kind of thing. Um, and uh, in interesting sound. Uh, so interesting sound that has a lot to do with sort of dark ambient and stuff like that, which is uh, going to be a common thread on those these last three bands. Next one is, and last, is The Old Beast Law by Secret Fire. Secret Fire is a fairly new project. I think he's done a couple dark ambient releases before. Um, and this is out on his own label, Throne of May, which is pretty cool. Uh, and up till now has just been posting dank medieval pictures on Instagram. But uh, this is the first release. Um, and uh, yeah, it's kind of like uh, black metal, but filtered through a sort of post-industrial or neo-folk aesthetic and with those kinds of atmospheres and it's it's pretty interesting uh so uh that's that all right first up new record by devoured the curse of sabda palon so uh as i said at the top uh devoured's a band i've got a little bit of experience with uh, i heard some of their old material way back in the day and uh it's weird. There's a, a significant gap. Their their first full length record, this being their second, uh, was back in 2012. Uh, so there's a big nine year gap, and it doesn't look like it involved a lot of lineup changes or something. I guess life just got in the way for those guys. But in the intervening period, uh, things changed substantially for them. Uh, so Devoured is an Indonesian band, and uh, for those who don't know, uh, Indonesia actually has a a huge brutal death scene, um, as well as a pretty solid black metal one that's you know starting to develop more and more these days. And Devoured yeah. was originally in that first kind of wave of Indonesian brutal death bands that were coming out in you know the early to mid two thousands. 
Um, so just so we have a little bit of context, you know, so people can understand what a big shift this record is. Let's listen to something off their first album from 2012. Uh, this is just going to be the opening minute or so of a track called Vengeance and Blood. So already you can probably hear a, a pretty substantial difference between that and the record we're covering today. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. Fairly down the line, Brutal Death seems to fall in the niche of kind of blasty parts that sound like Morbid Angel and then those kinds of uh, all palm muted 16th note runs that uh, Exterminated do so much. Yeah, yeah. Uh, very, very traditional. Well executed, but definitely like a form that I'm pretty used to. And it's pretty typical of kind of the Indonesian sound where, uh, you know, a lot of it kind of owes to uh, New York death metal, like those ending kind of groove riffs or very uh, dying fetus, like grotesque mm -hmm. impalement, that kind of thing. Um, so nine year gap between then and now. And now what we've got is uh, a very curious kind of... Uh, well, I guess we were kind of debating in the notes how to refer to this, because this is uh, much more of an old-school death metal record, but it feels extremely modern at the same time. Yeah, I guess we got to figure that out. Um, it's uh, Oh, also, other little tidbit. I just looked at the Metal Archives, and it looks like they, start, they had a demo in 2002. So it was mm -hmm. even 10 years before their first demo and their first full length. So they've, like... They've been listening to this music seriously with the ears of musicians for almost 20 years. Um, yeah. And they just have not been that, you know, they haven't been as conventionally productive as some bands, right? But they, uh, like, so there's a lot of experience going into this. And uh, yeah. it's, yeah, and that, that must have, yeah, that must have shaped their taste in the intervening time. So I don't know, yeah. I mean... We, I think we agree that this sounds a lot like Swedish death metal. Yeah. I, I, I mean, the, the most obvious reference point is going to be Dismember. Um, I remember when I first skimmed, like, the first promo track and decided to cover this one, I was like, oh, this sounds a lot like Dismember, which was always my favorite of the Swedish death metal scene. And then I saw they actually do a cover of Dreaming in Red at the end of this record, so there you go. <laughs> How would you uh, how would you describe the signature dismember sound for people? I mean, this sounds to me this. I know you like the later dismember stuff. I really just know Everflowing Stream, which um, this does sound like. 
Yeah, I mean, it sounds like Everflowing Scream. I think there's a couple riffs that are direct nods to stuff off Everflowing. Mm-hmm. Um, but then later down the line, like, even on the following album, the the second album by Dismember is my favorite, Indecent and Obscene, uh, which is actually where Dream in Red comes from. Uh, it just, I mean, you get the you get the kind of fundamental hardcore-infused kicks of Swedish death metal, but they bring it a little bit closer to you know, melodic death metal pre-Gothenburg, as we understand it. So they, they hit this really nice, unique midpoint between this more kind of neoclassical, uh, more structurally informed style and something that's just very brutish and thudding. So and, uh, it's yeah. it's always been the juxtaposition between those two is what always made Dismember really special to me. Yeah, and I think that was there on Everflowing Stream, too, for sure. You've got uh, big... Mm-hmm. Yeah, some some uh, b- simple but big epic melodic riffs thrown in, like on Override of the Overture or something like that. And you can definitely hear nods to that here. Um, mm-hmm. But often when people think of sort of old school and Sweden, and maybe if they think of Dismember, right, right they're just going to think of the uh, Sunlight Studios sound, right? Uh, yeah. And, uh, you know, the sort of quote-unquote sweet F template that at this point has become it's almost like a template that's has less to do with old Swedish death metal than the parts of it that people focus on in retrospect, right? Which is really like Entombed, Dismember, Carnage, things that sound like that, that have the D-beat bass and this sort of uh, chunky high-speed thrash guitar under it or over it. Um, uh, and what seems what's interesting to me about this is like it seems yeah very Swedish, but it seems to draw on a broader idea of what Swedish death metal is like. Just like like a more comprehensive idea of like instead of just the Swedish sound, death metal from Sweden before 1994 or whatever. Yeah, and uh, like and which was a which was a much broader family, right? Um, mm-hmm. So. I thought we would. Uh, so can I, can I go into my first sample from that, or do you have any? Oh yeah, go ahead. Ever? Yeah. So um, as an example of that, uh, this uh, first sample is from uh, the end of Hasut Yerat Bunu, which is the third track, um, and we're gonna start out at the end of a kind of dismembery passage you can hear the kind of cycling chords and the big solo that you would get in like a song like override or a number of others off of everflowing stream um but then they're gonna pitch into something that is still swedish but a very different flavor than what we usually get uh so Mm. here we go Oh, 
I didn't notice it the first time. What's that big, uh, like, keening siren sound at the end there? Is that just like a lead guitar just hitting a that big was pretty... bend, or is that a synth? I don't know. It's pretty cool, right? That kind of echoing part? Yeah. Yeah, maybe... It, it could be a lead guitar, but, yeah. It sounds like it could be a really, really, uh... Like, really delayed lead, but, yeah, it's pretty cool and interesting, right? Um, mm -hmm. But, yeah, so from before that comes in, you just get this kind of, um... Barreling kind of, uh... Spooky minor tremolo. Um, and that sounds way more like kind of Swedish Black Death stuff. That sounds like... This is after 94, but it sounds like Dark Side or Necrophobic or um, Dissect, the more death metal riffs in Dissection, in mm -hmm. that it has a bit of a, it has a black metal melodic quality to it, but it's played on low-end single-string tremolo. Um, it, you know, it's um, not something that you would, I don't think you'd really expect too much like that on a... Uh, like, on the, the kind of standard Swedeth type thing that we usually get, which is often guys from the uh, the punk scene who latch onto the chunkiest types of riffing. Um, and there are other big melodic leads like that, especially on the early tracks. Like, uh, I think the best one is actually on um, the title, on, I guess, the first... Yeah, yeah the title track, I think. Uh, the Curse of Sadopalan. Um It's got this, like basically like a once sent from the golden hall riff <laughs> um like a it's like even more yeah less spooky more kind of epic and uh vaguely folky almost maybe a bit of southeast asian folk in there but there's a this really cool big melodic tram hook riff um and these things all kind of relate to the melodicism and dismember but i think also gesture at these other kinds of death metal that were also active in sweden at that time yeah, I mean, I think there's there's a lot of... Uh, what this record does really well is it splits uh, a careful line between uh, sort of like straight-up old-school Swedish indulgence, as well as understanding that there is like structurally really intricate stuff happening on a lot of those songs. Like you brought up uh, Necrophobic is a really good example of a band who was operating sort of within the same scene but used the black metal influence more in these uh, the way they're kind of constructing songs narratively um, in some of the melodic gestures but it was still like necrophobic still reads fundamentally as like a death metal band at heart to me the black metal influences are not made through the most obvious gestures you know what I mean yeah, it's more the basic structures are all death metal. I mean, on Dark Side, they are using things like the Dark Funeral Chords in part because they shared a member, right? For one yeah, moment. yeah. But uh, <coughs> but it's all, but it will all be in kind of individual textures used on individual riffs or melodic qualities. There's they're definitely structured like Sweet Death songs or Swedish death yeah. metal songs. I can hear that. I but I like on certain tracks, especially towards the back half of this album, I start picking up on like greater Scandinavian death metal ideas. Like, uh, I feel like I'm hearing flickers of, like, Sentenced or, like, really early At The Gates or even just kind of weird also-ran stuff like Cadaver 
you know, that always had a, a little bit more of a an interesting, more bespoke sort of melodic style than a lot of people would think. Yeah, well, uh, you got you got an example for that? Uh, well, uh, I do a little bit later, but first I just want to go to the very following track. Uh, this is off uh, mm-hmm. Ambigo Kuasa, and so the riffing on this record is very strong, but I think the thing that makes it special is the, the vocal performance and the drum performance, both of which are really interesting here. They're doing very sort of unexpected, unconventional things, um, uh, especially with the vocals. And you'll be able to hear that here. There's a really kind of over-the-top, frantic vocal performance across this record, but I think it's one of the centerpieces of the album. So, uh, yeah, let's just uh, try out Ambigo Kuasa. So we got some uh, some pretty weird stuff going on on that one, right? Well, yeah, well, what's weird about it? Well, okay, so well, just kind of going through the sample. So the opening part, you know, the, <laughs> the riff figure is a pretty conventional dismember kind of thing. You know, you've got that kind of slinky, but not in like the Phrygian way sort of, you know, weaving and, you know, kind of wavering uh, melodic riff. But then you get three different vocal tracks that just emerge simultaneously. You got one left, one right, and one center channel. And all of them are kind of growling in different styles, and all of them seem to have completely different lyrics. I think the one in the left channel is like a repeated chant of just a few words, and then... Uh, the one on the right is doing, like, maybe a delayed accent of certain phrases from the main one in the middle, but it's very, very kind of cacophonous. And, but also, interestingly, it gives this strange sort of, like, uh, Southeast Asian folk quality to it, because I, I've listened to a fair amount of Southeast Asian folk stuff, and you'll have these kind of, I mean, typically there's more of a melodic aspect, but these kind of uh, polyphonic, 
you know, intertwining vocal lines. And I, I think that's really interesting to have here. Um, and then after that, there's that big preparatory like stomp riff, you know, that they're yeah, using yeah, yeah. as a bridge. And you think, oh, we're just going to do kind of a breakdown from there. No, it's a head fake. And they go into this sort of like slow hammering blast section and then one of those big Kerry mm-hmm. King solos, and then a variation on that again. It's just that the way things line up are not traditional. There's always these kind of small surprises tucked away throughout all these songs, and I really appreciate that. That's funny about those vocals. That's a good example of something that you can hear that I can't. Like, I literally could only hear two voices there, probably because I wasn't noticing the left-right split. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. No, there's there's like three distinct lines in there. They're all doing different rhythmic patterns. I hear what you mean about like emphasizing the voices as related to to folk, though, because like uh, some of the dudes from that black you know war metal band, War Cult, they're like in a uh, which that that's Indonesia, right? Yeah. Yeah, they're um, Indonesian. They're in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're they're in this um sort of folk art folk vocal ensemble where they're all doing reconstructing folk songs using death metal vocals and black metal <laughs> vocals uh and and it seems like that must have some sort of relationship to i don't know like throat singing based traditional styles or something but there's definitely like an emphasis on vocal performance i think oh yeah well indonesia itself is I, I, you know, Indonesia as a nation is very similar to, say, the Philippines, where it is really, you know, 200 different ethnic groups and folk traditions and ideas that have just been sort of lumped together in modern times. Because uh, what these guys seem to specifically focus on is uh, uh, Javan mythology, like uh, Sabda Palon. Okay. I, I had to do some research on it. Um, and then I had to do more because I realized that most of the English language sources I was able to find were bullshit. So I had to go to Google Translate to find actual Indonesian ones. <coughs> so, excuse me. So Sabda Palon uh, apparently was some sort of like clergy slash an advisor to uh, King Brawajawa V, who... Uh, and it's hard to tell if this is historical or mythological. It's probably both, in a sense. Uh, so King Brawajawa was the last of the sort of Hindu-Buddhist empire uh, that had controlled Java for many, many <coughs> centuries. And uh, he converted to Islam. Or, you know, on the historical side, maybe he was overthrown in a coup or he was invaded. It's very hard to tell. Yeah. Um, the version I read said something like he bowed the knee to the invader, so maybe he was defeated and then converted. Something like that, yeah. I, I, I had to check. I saw, I mean, this is all folk tradition, so it's like you're going to see these different variations on the same general theme. And uh, so Sada Pallone, his advisor, uh, basically cursed him for this. And this would have been in 1476, I believe. And he said that in 500 years, he was going to return to <coughs> sweep Islam from the islands and return to the Hindu tradition of the previous empire. Um, and it's, it was interesting just doing some reading about how, like, 500 years later, ooh, people did start, you know, building new temples, like, almost did to they? the year. Yeah, yeah, specifically, That's that was... really cool. 
that the ball got rolling, that people were literally anticipating this 500-year mark of the return of Hinduism in a big way to Indonesia. So uh, it's a very interesting subject matter, and um, I'm kind of amazed that there's stories that are that interesting and cool, and there's just really no good English language resources on it. <laughs> yeah, dang. Well, that yeah, that that is pretty cool indeed. Um, okay, so for uh, something a little more lowbrow. Uh, <laughs> so the other thing about how comprehensive the idea of Swedish death metal on here is that it doesn't just move laterally, like, out from the usual bands everyone focuses on, like, sideways to their contemporaries. It also moves kind of backwards mm -hmm. um, to stuff that... Yeah, well, we'll, we'll, get, we'll get into it. But it moves kind of backwards to things that you might hear on uh, Nihilist or Early Grave or stuff from before then in the late 80s, those bands that were reference points for Altered Dead. Mm -hmm. um, so I really liked the beginning of Ambigu Kuasa that had that kind of quality for sure um, right before your sample started mm -hmm. but um, Siasat Sang Maha Pati Parapurna um, from uh, towards, towards the end um, has just some charging high speed stuff that sounds almost more deliberately primitive in a way that I really like. So uh, let's check that out. There's a uh, there's all that punk in uh, old school death metal that everyone forgot about, right? Yeah. Well, weirdly, everyone always you know they always say that, but they go back to this sort of chunky, grooving, entombed or whatever, right? But like, yeah, if you listen to like, I believe this is true of nihilist. Um, it's for sure true of of grave and whatever. You have these just instead of like the sort of pocket grooving D beats, they have these. Uh, really frantic skank beats that are almost blast beats um mm -hmm. or they'll have like something i guess you could call them like slap blasts or something which are just <laughs> basically like the skank beats but backwards when you're leading with the snare um and uh this record has a lot of both of those uh just really kind of pushing the tempo in a way that's you know you get in the you get in proto death metal thrash and then in death metal, uh, and then in this kind of early death metal, um, especially in Sweden. Um, 
And the riff, right? The riff has that, like, those are like blue. That's like basically a blues scale. Yeah, yeah. You got the big kind of ascending pentatonic thing, which uh, you point out in the notes is a very kind of Southeast Asian folk thing. Yeah, it's being used in a way that doesn't really sound... It's cool, because it's not being used to really sound bluesy or rock and roll. It seems mm-hmm. like it might be, yeah, gesturing again in this folk direction. In a way that they do kind of light, you know, kind of without making a big deal about it throughout the album. Um, but yeah, for listeners, if they want to hear an example of that kind of pentatonic feel in uh, Southeast Asian uh, extreme metal, you could check out the Thai bands uh, Surrender of Divinity or Lotus of Darkness. Um, but, uh, but yeah, like, so pretty cool. And I guess that also connects it to another band you mentioned in the notes here, which is, uh, Insertus. Yeah. I mean, uh, Insertus was <coughs> a band that I kept coming back to because we, we found this whole thread of, um, kind of old school oriented death metal bands that are using, uh, you know, modern techniques to make them much more extreme than they originally were. Um, you know, in Certus, you've got that just ridiculously brutal vocal performance that at first mm-hmm. seems inappropriate, but then it makes perfect sense. The idea yeah. of transforming old Bathory songs into these, like, crushing death metal tracks. Uh, and I think that there's similar ideas happening here, just in that they're yeah, there, there's a similar, a mirroring idea of reaching back to old stuff, but not sacrificing any of the sort of modern abstraction that we now have, you know, in in the tool chest, so to speak. Yeah. So what I'm wondering is like, at what point does it start to be, you know, so one thing that's interesting is, okay, we're realizing that Insertus is not as eccentric as it initially appeared to be, as in there are mm-hmm. other bands doing this kind of thing. And, you know, we could, Alter Dead is maybe more, in some sense, sounds less eccentric than either of these bands, but is equally oriented towards, like, in their case, like, pre, you know, pre-91 death metal, right? But yeah. it also sounds super modern. Um yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, the so, thing that makes and, these guys and, distinct... Oh, I'm uh, sorry. I was just going to say, so at what point is it like... I see how they're drawing from the same well as the OSDM bands, but maybe at what point should we just let this be, like, new? Like, okay, they're they're using... Like, are, maybe they are finally breaking the OSDM curse. And, like, <laughs> You know, using those, instead of doing this kind of nostalgia trip homage stuff, using a material that has been consigned to, like, retro aesthetics for a long time, using it to make more new-sounding stuff. I think it's kind of an open question, because in many ways this is very wedded to those old-school styles, structures, for sure, but it... you. It, it also is more than a... All of these bands, it's more than like a superficial updating. Yeah, no, it's not a matter of just playing it with... <coughs> with like modernized production or, uh, you know, greater technical ability. Now, there's They're using kind of some of the deep structural development that's happened in extreme metal mm-hmm. uh, over the course of however many years, depending on, you know, where your throwback point is. 
Um, and I, I guess I don't really know the answer to that question either, because, I mean, clearly there's a thread that's getting picked up on by a lot of newer death metal bands, or at least in the case of Devoured, a, a, an older band that's putting out one of their infrequent records. Um, I guess we're just going to have to see if it really coalesces into something. Um, I mean, we're seeing it in fits and starts here and there on a bigger scale. You know, we're seeing a lot more uh, old school oriented bands who are making, I mean, for instance, look at last year, one of the best records of the year, uh, the, Sepul- the Sepulchral Curse record, which mm-hmm. uh, obviously that's extremely old school Finnish death metal at its heart, but it's light years beyond what most of those guys were doing back in the day structurally. So we're just going to have to see how it shakes out, I guess. Um, Fair enough. But maybe one clue is going to be on my last sample. Um, So here is what I think is one of the most ambitious parts of the record. I really enjoyed the first half, but it was the second half of this album that really grabbed me, where I started to realize, oh, there's some, like, very subtle things happening in this. There's some really ambitious structural conceits going on. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think that if you listen to a track like this, try to connect it mentally to some of the, like, the Hessian Firm stuff that we've covered. And I-, I was hearing that connection, too. I think in the first sample I pulled with that kind of necrophobic-sounding lead, that's really Hessian Firm. Oh, yeah, no, definitely in terms of, like, the riffing style, but here you're going to hear that applied to the sort of convoluted Hessian Firm song structures. Ah. Um, and then I think it's like, oh, okay, so maybe there really is kind of a movement going on. So this is off of uh, Dang Hyang Sabda Palong uh, right. towards the beginning, and uh, this is, I think this is probably my favorite track. Oh, 
So yeah, on that one, I definitely <clears throat> want to draw attention to like the back half of that sample where you've got the uh, what would be sort of just like a a big behemoth riff or something, mm-hmm. but they proceed to go through. They probably clock like five different variations of it, you know, throughout it. Like uh, it's hard to tell because there's so much going on on the guitars. I think this is a place where there's like three separate guitar lines. There's like two leads in a rhythm, mm-hmm. and. Uh, you think okay, so you can hear the leads doing a long sort of winding melody, sort of in like the into oblivion style. But then what you might not know is because it's a little buried in the production is the actual riff itself, the rhythm riff with those big held chords keeps changing. They keep doing different voicings of those chords, slowly changing them and developing them. And actually instead of making them more melodic, they're making them slowly more chromatic. As it goes into this crushing traditional kind of death metal blast section right after this. Yeah, I was done. a little blue ball that you cut it off right there. That was pretty sick. <laughs> I know. I just like because well, I just I really like the head fake stuff these guys do. Like this opens with yeah. a big sort of doom death riff, and then it just breaks into something else. Like they 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 really commit to not doing the easy thing, which is something I talk about a lot on this show. They try to take the harder path in a lot of these songs. There were at least eight riffs in that passage, right? I mean, maybe yeah. more. And um, n- it never sounded schizo. They yeah, no, all, it all uh, it's all natural. Yeah, they, and, and for a lot of it, they just, um, they kind of used the uh, that kind of one-two uh, skank slayer beat drumming to weave it together. That mm-hmm. was kind of, you just, you just keep the drummer charging along um, and uh, in this classically Swedish way, but you're changing things over it in a different way. I also thought that the riffing towards the end with that sort of morphine behemoth riff, um, mm-hmm. which I guess does make sense as a description, it was kind of weird. It, it had a hypnotic quality to it that you don't usually get with death metal riffing. That and some of the riffs before it. This was all a little more... Um, yeah, yeah, That that's all I was going to say. Well, I think... I think that what you're hearing there is that there is this undercurrent uh, of kind of Southeast Asian folk. Um, there's this undercurrent of the the sort of <coughs> mythological or historical underpinnings of this music being important to the content. You know, it, it does have kind of this darkly mystical feel. It does have that, that taste of Southeast Asia in it. And that's really the way to do it, is it should be a, a subtle sort of informing aspect of the music um this is this is a record that does you know you're starting with dismember but then you're ending up in a very different place altogether and i think for that reason alone it's worth listening to Hey, it's Kari from Sepulchre Curse. And I'm Yaku. You're listening to Terminus. All right, we are back. Uh, and now we begin a, uh, a descent into madness for three albums straight. <laughs> so, um, so like we said at the top, this is, this is a little odd because... Um, Two of the like flagship records that we chose, and really it kind of ends up being three of the records for today, are all sort of operating with very similar raw materials. Um, 
and uh, I'd say those materials are going to be um, orthodox black metal, uh, uh, sort of pagan black metal with a sort of melodic flair, uh, some little hints of like goth and post-punk and stuff like that. And that that goes th- across all three of these next records we're going to be covering, um, in but in various different shades. Uh, so you're going to hear a lot of different, a lot of different ways to use the same material that results in completely different music, despite how much they have in common. Would you agree? I think number three is a little bit as more different raw material than Inferno mm-hmm. and uh, I think Inferno and Fairnask really do have a lot of the same raw material. I think what connects Secret Fire to these, yeah, there's some similar influences for sure. You can you can find them. Um, but what really connects all three of them, I think, is it's uh, it's black metal being made with the sensibility of different genres. And those genres mm-hmm. are something like uh, a little bit different in each case, but various kinds of sort of uh, atmospheric, uh, electronic, and post-industrial music. Yeah, that, yeah, that, that's that, yeah. So I, I think and, so because I, I think you actually hit on some things with Inferno that I was kind of grasping at, but I think you got a little bit more immediately than me. Um, so speaking of which, so the first record of this rundown, we're going to be going between these records a lot as far as you know we're going to be talking about all of them in each review um i didn't realize that but that's a good idea (laughs) oh no i i i I think that's just going to come up naturally because i I, like i can't talk about the inferno without talking about the fern ask and vice versa um so inferno's paradigma uh phosphines of aphotic eternity uh, so I actually brought this on the show because I was at a, uh, a bandmate's place the other day and he was talking about listening to this a lot and he showed me a little bit of it. And I thought it was really cool and I ended up checking it out later and I thought this had been released, you know, maybe a couple years back, but no, it turns out this is a brand new record by Inferno. Uh, so for those of you who aren't familiar, uh, Inferno, very long running, uh, Czech black metal band. I think they trace back to, yeah, like the mid to late nineties. Um, and I'm a little bit familiar with older Inferno material, like from uh, around the mid-2000s is where I heard some of their records and splits and stuff like that. And I remembered them as being extremely solid, uh, extremely rigorous black metal, sort of in like the co- the uh, Cult of Zivi tradition, but mm-hmm. not quite as like hermetic and abstract as that. So yeah, yeah as like you we, said before the show, not quite as grumbly. Yeah, not quite as grumbly. Um, so just as a reference point uh, for the older style they were playing in, which after hearing it again, I started to realize has more connections to this than I thought. Um, let's listen to the title track off their 2003 record. Uh, and apologies in advance for butchering this. Vodnavratu Ponštvi, something to that effect. Uh, so let's uh, let's listen to a little that bit. That sounded all right. Yeah, it's it sounded check. That was it, it probably plausi- that was, isn't. That was plausible. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's that's what matters. So uh, let's listen to just a chunk from the middle of this.
See, that's yeah. that's pretty fucking cool music. That's pretty sick, dude. I like that a lot. Yeah, I mean, if you like if you like that stuff, I absolutely recommend any of Inferno's old material full lengths. And there's a lot of great stuff buried on uh, all these different splits they did with various other kind of underground European black metal bands. It's just the you're at <laughs> you're, you you have no risk of running out of material with these guys because they're extremely prolific. Um. So, like I was saying, so Inferno back then is like, <clears throat> okay, it's very rigorous in this Czech sense. I mean, I think at this point we've decided that, like, the banner of Czech black metal, even if it's eccentric, kind of is cult off and zivvy, of just, like, it's oppressively traditional, but also very abstract at the same time. I feel and, like cult off and zivvy is at a good midpoint between Master's Hammer like it's got the vocals and the willful kind of weirdness. It's like good midpoint between Master's Hammer or stuff like this or Triumph Genus or you mm-hmm. know. Yeah. Or uh fucking was it a uh, no, I was thinking of the wrong band. I was gonna yeah. say Mortuary Drape, but no, they're from Italy. I always forget. But um Yeah, yeah so <clears throat> but that's that's kind of the memory I had of this band. So then uh, you know, a couple of days ago, I'm listening to Paradigma, and I'm like, well, holy fuck, uh, something changed. Now, I haven't listened to a lot of the uh, records between these two eras, but I think it's on their 2013 or maybe their 2017 record where they really split into this new direction. And uh, in terms of describing what that is, that's that's kind of hard to describe. I mean, it's it's orthodox black metal in a sense, but it's structured in a very, very different way. And you had some interesting ideas about what you think kind of the, the structural core of this music is. Well, okay, yeah. If I, I, I guess I could get it to get to it here. Um, so yeah, I mean, certainly orthodox stuff. You mentioned in the notes, Aesoth, Ruins of Bever. Uh, Ruins of Everest is relevant. That for sure sounds right. Bloodhouse Nord. Um, uh, you know, um, f- for me, I think that all seems right. I would add, like, um, a band like Lichgate in the sense that this is black metal that seems highly influenced by Funeral Doom. Mm-hmm. Um, right? We get some organs in here. And probably just in terms of the general vibe and the crazy vocals, Portal. Right? Yeah. Uh, but, um, you know, the basic guitar technique, the chording really does come from Orthodox BM. Uh, but this is, yeah, what, so what's different about this? What's holding all these different name checks together? Well, it, uh, this sounds really crazy. Uh, and in places it, um, in some places, it cleaves pretty closely to standard riff patterns, but in a lot of others, in a lot of the most exciting places, it seems to sort of come completely unstuck from traditional ideas of riff or even melody. <laughs> yeah, that's it, true. <laughs> it just kind of flies free in this. You get these free-floating textures that of a kind that you do get in various kinds of electronic music, but there's a, there's a sort of wildness to it that's pretty unique. Um, I would say... And, you know, I, I hate applying this word to black metal just because mm. 
every time I've heard it used, it usually sucks. Yeah. I think this is the first record record that I'll describe positively as psychedelic black metal. Yeah, it is definitely that, right? And it sort of like moves away from like, yeah, this any any sort of anchoring melodic center, but yet there it's not it's not like wishy-washy formless goo. There's this kind of like uh I, I wrote this in my notes, so I'll just say it's from my notes. I did sort of this high-intensity, fluid-dynamic kind of shape to it, you know? It's mm-hmm. like, or high-density, you know? It's like st- mi- movements of mysterious forces, right? Um, yes. And, and so what makes it do that? Well, like, you know, the, the, the obvious question is like, how the fuck do you hear that? I get how I get how people composing in an electronic vein can sort of you know can do that but the particular way this band does it um i think what's happening is that even though this occupies sort of the same general territory as a lot of these like tightly controlled one-man studio projects this is a band and i think they jammed these ideas and i think this band is like literally strongly influenced by jammy music or at least by the idea of jamming. Um, yeah. Particularly like uh, jammy electronic music. So shit that would be, as far as like stuff that is electronic, intense, qualifies as extreme metal and is like cool, but is also sort of like linked to ravey festival music. I'd say like Psytrance would yeah. be. Uh, oh, I like, thought you were going to say Coil until you got to the rave part. <laughs> no, this doesn't remind me of. No, it really reminds me of like like Psytrance or even like um, uh, kind of more shit, shit like that that's like actually like like Coil did improvise a lot and maybe these guys I wouldn't be surprised if these guys like Coil um, but like it really has a quality of um, they anchor into grooves uh, and then riff on them and mm-hmm. I think that occasionally it's a weakness but very often it's a strength and i've wanted to hear like i've said things on this show before about how i've I've been interested in people opening up black metal structures and like wanting to hear more improvisatory stuff and this is a kind of cool path to it um so uh okay uh are 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 you good to uh get into the samples oh yeah yeah we got uh we've got back-to-back samples uh, from one song, and I think it's uh, it's like we always say on the show: if we do that, that means that there's something yeah. important happening. That's that's usually a sign of like an album that we're really interested in. This this yeah, this album also has just a couple big centerpiece tracks, and this is for sure. I feel like the first track, the first major track on this one, is kind of like a an overture. It's like mm-hmm. here are the different parts on this record. Here are some cool parts. The album goes on. Um. So, you the part that you get to from this song, which is Descent into Hell of the Future, certainly a timely title, um, is... Uh, <laughs> the part you get to is really sick. And what's interesting is that it comes out of what I think is maybe the weakest moment on the album. And I was fir- when I was first listening to this part, I was like, oh, like, you know, what, what, what's going to happen from here? Um, mm-hmm. Let's listen to it. Um, And keep in mind the idea of jamminess. Okay. Yeah, let's go. 
Yeah, it's funny. You did manage to select what I think is probably the the, the single most boring part of the record. <laughs> it's the orthodox chord progression, right? It's just this, the uh, the straight duh 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 duh, just oh, sort yeah. of um. um every orthodox it, record gets one, you know. Yeah, and and yeah, and you can use it in different ways. And in that, in this case, they use that melodic idea to which here doesn't sound good to launch into something that's really cool. But this part, yeah, you just get this kind of cliche Watain riff distilled to the very basics over these kind of oh, yeah. ch- chunky backbeat drums, and it kind of just sounds like Sepultura on ketamine, you know? Um, <laughs> and, uh, like, but that's only if you isolate it. It gets pretty cool after this, um, and I, I really like this album generally. Uh but like, yeah, this part doesn't really work, and you can hear it not really working as a consequence of like the reason, the perils of jamminess, right? It's just like, yeah, you find a groove, you groove on it, and then the vocalist and whoever's messing with the synths does some stuff over it. Yeah, because it's like, I mean, you know, improvisation or at least that sort of methodology for writing. I mean, there's there's gradients of it, of mm-hmm. how much is improvised or not. <clears throat> you know, it's always, it's always a risk-taking venture, because on one hand, either everyone's locked in, or and you, you all just find the perfect way to move between different passages, or mm-hmm. you get a section like this where you're kind of like fumbling in the dark. You're looking for the light switch, you're looking for the way out into something <laughs> and i feel like that's what's happening here like it, it feels kind of placeholdery you get locked into a holding pattern yeah and sometimes those holding patterns can feel very satisfying to play mm-hmm. but not so much to listen to right which is why people make fun of jam bands right i mean no yeah at, I, and I don't know if like psytrance is the exact right reference point but like i think it would have to be relevant but there are other kinds of just like jammy festival electronic music where people will just like lock into a groove and there will be some weebles and woobles over it and shit like yeah that. yeah yeah well i think i also think that like it doesn't happen too often on this record but i would say the kind of like straightforward orthodox rock parts are easily the weakest points on the record i i i think they could yeah. all all the sort of like Watain stuff, you could excise all of that and nothing would be lost. No question. Um, these guys can, you know, these guys can write riffs and shit, right? We just heard that on the old, on the old record, but um, mm-hmm. this is, although the lineups have changed somewhat, but like, I'm sure these guys can all write riffs, right? But this is not a, this is not a riff oriented. This record is not a riff oriented record. Oh, definitely moments. not. Definitely not. Yeah. Which is. A yeah. place where, you know, when we get to it, I'll compare it to Fernask because this mm-hmm. is, like I said, we're dealing with very similar raw material for both these bands, but where Inferno is really into this sort of traditional electronic or ambient way of composing songs of shifting textures into each other, mm-hmm. Fernask is really interested in, like, isolated negative space for every single part, you know? Yeah, there's a, separation. There's a deliberate sense of separation where, versus in Inferno, at the best points on this record, there's no separation whatsoever. You cannot, you cannot draw any one thing in particular from a moment in a very yeah. cool way. 
Well, uh, which you know, I, I, we're about to get to that actually. <laughs> yeah, and so I was going to say to segue. I think in defense of the riffing on this album, parts like this that you're about to get into, mm-hmm. this involves riffing that is good. It's center. You can follow the guitars here, and it's a cool riff. But it just it's not like it, it's not working with a conventional pattern. It's this very weird shape that's made. They take that one orthodox chord progression and start using it as the modular unit for this bizarre Lovecraftian shape they start building with it. And that's yeah. cool. Yeah, so let's get to uh, the next uh, part of Descent into Hell of the Future. Right after your section, we're going to be continuing off the, the very tail end of that kind of jam session, and it's just going to crack open from there. <laughs> yeah. So I did not think this was possible. This is something that I've been kind of searching for my whole life. Uh, how do you make a a blast beat and a tremolo riff sound like skepticism? Oh, you you can do it. Apparently they cracked the code. At that very last one there, it's like, wow, that sounds like something off early skepticism. It just completely contorted in terms of tempo. Yeah, yeah. I think, I mean, even some of that strength, even, you know, that crazy kind of turn, it, yeah, that, the crazy turnaround that opens that, where, where you get this mm-hmm. s- sequence of chords is, uh, that even that kind of has a skepticism quality to it in places. Yeah, um, it's, um, so, I mean, so obviously this is a record that's kind of impossible to sample, uh, because, even more than usual when we say that, because everything is just 
textures shifting into one another. There's not... There's very few distinct musical passages on this. Um, like, uh, it is almost a cliche to say, but this definitely is written and constructed in a way much more, like, advanced electronic music than it is, uh, like, heavy metal songwriting. Because everything... Because the, the primary unit here is not the riff, it is the texture. There's riffs going on, but... This is fundamentally made through contrasting sound objects, contrasting timbres, and you know the narrative is kind of carried through that. I manipulated feel. manipulated vocals. I mean, those are a huge, like a surprisingly large proportion of the crazy whooshing sounds are vocals. Are <laughs> just the vocals that are mm-hmm. that are just like it's it's like they were done very quietly. And then reverb and and amplification was poured onto it mm-hmm. in in just this bizarre way, and they're so far in the background they really do just become almost like a, a an undulating synth texture underneath mm-hmm. everything. And it's, I mean, it's like it, just in terms of the timbre of everything and how these layers are constructed. I mean, it's it's some of the most vast music I've heard in extreme metal. Just like the scope of it just seems impossibly huge <laughs> like yeah it's uh I don't, I don't know if would i go to most vast i'm not sure but it definitely is vast yeah i don't there's there's something about this that hits me especially because like I'll, I'll spoil it i think this is probably going to be on my year-end list because i think i'm gonna yeah. get obsessed with this and keep listening to it and trying to pick more parts out. Um, <clears throat> it's, uh, there's something very unique and there's something very difficult to talk about with this music. You know, trying to pull out any individual elements or ideas is extremely difficult, which is one of the things that makes it so kind of fascinating and exciting to me, I think. Yeah, it, you know, I mean, I think also it's sophisticated music that's also kind of viscerally enjoyable. Um, yeah, yeah. It's not... It's not like pure abstraction in the way that something like Devil Groth is. And it's but not it's close. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so let's um do you want to go to I guess mine is from earlier in the album, but uh sure. Do we you want to go yours. to yours or mine next? Yeah, let's go to yours cuz mine's from the last song and we'll just we'll go back and forth, sure. Yeah, the last song's cool. So this is um so here, I mean with the this is, I would say this section is strictly analogous to my first sample. But here, the jammy quality of it is that they're killing it. This is the example <laughs> of really good jammy black metal. Um, you're going to hear there's, they, there, there's a groove and there's things happening over it, but it feels extremely different from the last one. So this is a ecstasis of the continuum. And uh, this was the part where when I got to this whatever sort of doubts I was feeling were dispersed. I was like, oh, this is, this is, this is cool. This is like, this is legit. And, uh, <laughs> um, I, I got, th- I, this is the moment where I started to like really headbanging, you know? All right.
Yeah, it's Well, it's it's interesting because I mean the only like you said it is directly analogous to your first sample. And only a couple things are really different, but I think they're that important. One, you don't have the uh you don't have the the kind of stereotypical orthodox riff. You're just mm-hmm. cruising on like one chord through most of that. And th- also the thing that makes it interesting, which is very electronic, is that that single like gossamer thread of that synth mm-hmm. moving through different effect patterns, you know, moving through the flanger and, you know, changing in timbre and contorting. And you're just you're fascinated by the evolution and it's just like a single tone. It's not melodically doing anything. It's purely through the textures that it's mm, so that's a good engrossing. Point. Yeah, that yeah. was the thing I was wondering. Is like a lot of the dense textures are not harmonically that complex. It they're just wildly dispersed through different sounds. Um, yeah. I, well, this but is the, but the very beginning of that. Uh, the or your last sample or no mm-hmm. wait sorry was it. Where was the crazy twelve tone sounded shit again? Was that on your sample? It was at the beginning of yours, but yeah. but that's that's revealing right there. It's hard but to that, tell where so any of this one, is coming from. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but that one was uh, that one was you could hear this band is capable of real harmonic sophistication when they want to be right. Like the very beginning mm-hmm. of this sample with that strange chiming dissonant thing that you likened to Bloodhouse Nord, right? But yes, then in yes. this more in this more jammy passage, it's definitely very like drone focused, just intensely layered octaves. Mm. Yeah, and, well, uh, it's. I mean, the whole melodic dimension of this record, like what you're able to pick out through all the layering, is very interesting because there is there's a lot of almost major key ideas on this. It's just very strange context that it pops up in. Yeah, no. So this part, what they're at, there are two chords. It's even more now because there are two chords here, just like the two chord riff on the last one. But these are, this is just a whole step descent. So it puts you in the territory of like, uh, it suggests kind of um, pentatonic drone, which can imply both major or minor. And in this case, mm-hmm. I think they're suggesting a little bit of major. And the thing that it really sounds like the thing between those drums and yeah between the drums and the bass and the the, the guitar what it really sounds like is um like krautrock or hawkwind mm-hmm. sort of like heavy uh highly dosed 70s psych right um yes and, definitely and and so you've got the difference is that that first one had kind of a like half-hearted syncopated groove you know, mm-hmm. the, the the guitar was kind of chunk chunking along, and the drummer was doing this kind of like, you know, back breakbeat syncopated thing. Here, a, a cool beat in search for a better part. Yeah, or and just like more enthusiasm and a different, <laughs> you know. And uh, no, I mean, I think I think it was I think that one was kind of a uh, a troped beat, um, but this is like. This, this one has this kind of driving forward momentum. Like, record critic dudes who know more about Krautrock than me would call this Motoric, M-O-T-O-R-I-K. <laughs> um, it has that sort of, like, mid-tempo but very propulsive, repetitive, looping drums. Each The, the little rolls kind of spill each unit over to the next one. 
And the bass, you can hear, is like locked into just, in some sense, it's rhythmically less complicated than the other one because the bass is just locked into yeah just cruising walking baseline shit super cruising um you know like yeah you know lemmy was in hawkwind before motorhead right yeah so this just taps into this reptile brain drone groove and the jamming is really working and although the the rhythms are less complicated than before the playing here is way tighter and more committed, I think. Like, you can hear that they are, um, they're all bouncing off each other in the sort of energized way you get when you get a really good groove. Yeah, you got the, well, I mean, it's got that, it's got that strident forward marching quality of, like, immortal or something like that. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. You know, it's um, like, this is, this is the most leather jacket moment on the record, and it's sick. Um, Warrior at the edge of Blashirk. Um, yeah. Uh, well, also, but I, I was also thinking, cause especially when I saw you in the notes, you know, referencing stuff like Hawkwind and Krautrock, mm-hmm. it's like, maybe the origin for a lot of these ideas is much simpler than we're making it. Maybe just a lot of it is, like, Hivis Lissette Taros. Mm. How so? Well, I mean... Obviously, Varg was always more interested in sort of, like, distinct movements, in a way. He wasn't playing with stuff quite as much in terms of intersecting textures as these guys are. But the idea of these elongated, kind of strident, almost ambient passages that still have this very intense kind of forward-moving pulse to them, like... Listening, listening to that section that you just played, and listening to like Detzelmengangvar off Hivis Lasset, pr- produce very similar feelings to me. I guess. Yeah, I mean, like, yeah, I mean, certainly, like, that's got to be one of the earliest for drone black metal, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, I, yeah, that that could be an influence for sure. I mean, like, probably they're picking up on that aspect that's already in black metal and linking it to this other stuff. I mean, that part just literally does sound like Hawkwind or something yeah. like that. But, like, I, I hear that. That's probably relevant here. I mean, certainly their old stuff was very, uh, very traditionalist, right? Sort of 90s black metal. So that makes mm-hmm. sense. I, I, yeah, no, I was just thinking because I mean, you know, obviously, also, Varg was listening to shit like that. Varg was into that's like tangerine, another reason I connected it. Yeah, yeah, Tangerine Dream and various kind of spacey early electronics. And you know, I say this every third show, but he would stand on the back of the rave drinking milk. Right? It's, <laughs> it's, uh, how oh, do you man. know which one of your friends will stab you? By doing that, that's the guy. Yeah, that, 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 that's, that's the guy. Time. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so for a last sample, uh, I want to go to um, s- the final track. It's called Stars Within and Stars Without Projected into the Matrix of Time, uh, which is Ooh. sick. Um, I, 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 love, I love the song titles on this that are like kind of sci-fi mm. and kind of Gnostic and kind of just... It's, it's just like, I mean, you said in the notes, it's like, maybe these guys are just like huge fucking stoners. There's a real like dark weed energy. Dark side weed energy is the phrase that you came up with. This is this is dark side weed energy, like with Astral Tomb. This is for sure dark side weed energy. And you know, you do get that with other Czech metal, but especially the grind, right? 
Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, the, all the check grind is just, like, super stoned, or you can look, or something like, even, like, really primordial shit, like, uh, I, I don't know. Let me think. What would be a good example? Like, um, what has that real... Uh, probably like root. Root has a sort of weed energy to it to me. Root you know? could root could kind of be motoric. <laughs> is that like some specific krautrock term? Yeah, no, or? it's like it's just a term for a vibe. It's a feeling. Yeah, it's like it. it people used it to describe krautrock and other kinds of like heavy repetitive music in the seventies before heavy repetitive music was really a thing. You know, mm, you might okay, like. Gotcha. You know, yeah, it's. Yeah, you would use it about like the shit like that, or certain kinds of post punk or whatever. It's oh, it's okay. just a term. It's a term I'm bringing from outside the metalverse into the metalverse. But yeah, you know, I just hadn't heard it. Yeah, yeah, and it's entirely possible that for these guys, they're actually more rooted in that than anything like Psytrance. But what they certainly are is huge stoners. <laughs> I could definitely see that. <clears throat> so um. So this is the last track on the album. I really like this. I don't have a ton to say about it apart from the texturing being some of the coolest I've ever heard on a black metal record. Mm -hmm. And you're going to hear way more of, okay, this isn't about riffs. This is about intersecting textures. But one thing I wanted to bring up, it's kind of an aside, but it's something we've talked about on the show a little bit before. Um, like just looking at like YouTube comments and shit. So many people are talking about this being very evil and very scary and like dark music which is like i that's not how i read this at all no there's nothing evil about this music this is like 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 drugged out and kind of like darkly mystical and it's cool you're in sort of a, a bizarre abstract landscape you're not really sure what's going on but nothing's threatening you here you're just exploring a, a different dimension or something. I don't know. It's but it was like, how is this? How is this evil? This isn't fucking evil, <laughs> you know. Yeah, that's that. That's noob shit, man. It's like I mean, we've seen that on so many bands. Like that, that, that comes up again and again. People commenting like, "This is the most evil shit," and it's like, what? What? What do you mean? Um, but this in particular is very good vibes, right? This isn't even like. I mean, you know, like, this is less malevolent than your average, you know, pagan average black, black metal, metal record. You yeah, your average, your average pagan black metal record isn't evil, but it's highly invested in uh, killing people with swords. Right? Yeah, this isn't and even this about is, that. No. This so just, I'm, I just put this on and I remember how I feel when I do DMT sometimes, you know? Yeah, yeah dude. Yeah, it makes me miss being really makes me miss being really fucked up at like shows um uh, you but you had a um you had a really good way of describing this that you need oh. to say on air uh, i described it because a lot of people have talked about this as sounding like kind of chthonic and it's like okay yeah. i can kind of get yeah. that and yeah. i just said in the notes i just said in the notes it sounds like you're looking at cthulhu but like a nice cthulhu with like pleasantly glowing tentacles you know He's just like, what's up, man? I know this is pretty weird for you, but just chill. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like, I, like, uh, Thulu, uh, hands you a bowl of really mellow kush, uh, just as, <laughs> just as Tool is coming on stage. Okay. <laughs> All, right. All right, so let's, uh, yeah, let's listen to Stars Within and Stars Without. All right. 
do you uh do you want to eat some like weed gummies and go to the planetarium where they synced up the laser show to this album? Hell yeah, bro. That sounds it sounds awesome. We were talking while I was playing. It's like it 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 suddenly came over me. This is the world's chillest black metal album, which it really is, is so chill. Which just the idea of describing that that seems so antithetical to the style, but they really pull it off. It really is its own thing. A phrase that maybe it was you who called attention to this the other day, but a phrase that my friends and I used to have was one could chill hard. This right. is hard chilling, yes. This is music for chilling very hard, yes. Um, uh, yeah, like, um, so, yeah, so you get a bunch of YouTube comments about evil and Cthulhu and all that, right? But um, then you get uh, this guy who comments, um, just a second, uh, scrolling down. There we go. Uh, premature apotheosis comments everything these guys do is executed with the utmost masterful precision I have a long drive in two days so I'm going to wait and listening to this then windows down, joint in hand I can't fucking wait I am sure it will be the album of the year in my opinion (laughs) it's like, he gets it, yeah this is supposed to be like chill music I I, kind of like the idea of I don't think this is an album that's very this is not an album like, say, Reverorum Id Malacht, where you lock into it and you concentrate on what it is about. This record just kind of like wants to give you a push into introspection. You play it while talking to like your most interesting and kind of intellectual friends, and you see how the tones kind of send your conversation into interesting directions. You know, it's not it's not a record that like. It insists itself, you know. It's it's not supposed to be the the main feature. You With know, the right group of people, this would be like doing ecstasy music. I mean, I wish I knew girls that freaky now, but you know, uh, <laughs> like.
right, so uh, we're coming back from a break for some uh, droning atmospheric sludge with uh, Fearnask's Seven Canoma out on Von Records. Um, so, uh, as we set up front, or as I guess as, as the death metal guy said at the beginning of our, our last review for Inferno, uh, these last three bands we're covering have a lot of common threads. Um, this is another one that's sort of uh, like Inferno. It's heavily informed by orthodox black metal guitar technique. It sounds very modern, and it is closely in dialogue with electronic stuff. In this case, more like dark ambient, neo-folk, post-industrial. Um, but the results, I mean shitty journalistic cliche but the results couldn't be more different um <laughs> y you know um it's uh we were talking during one of the breaks uh that you know basically all these last three bands are cool wizard music um <laughs> and this certainly is is this and the last one certainly is that so um Furnask have it's been a while since their last uh their last full length. I think it was like 2015, 2015 or 16. Yeah, yeah, something like that. Or 2016, Forn. Um, and although the music comes out of this sort of highbrow orthodox tradition, the lyrical themes have always been grounded more in sort of paganism, but with an mm -hmm. emphasis on sort of occult practice and on sort of the inner ideas more than the kind of, more than just say reconstructing ancient ritual or whatever, right? So... That's the thing it'll have in common with the uh, Secret Fire, too. Um, mm -hmm. But, um, so, th I think there were sort of more Norse themes on the old stuff, and there's still a lot of what looks like Old Norse for the song titles here, but uh, they say that the, uh, the the common theme running through the album is about sort of uh, theodicy, that is uh, T-H-E-O-D-I-C-Y that is the idea of the justification of the ways of God or since we're in a pagan tradition gods to man you know how do you uh, how do you explain the place of suffering in the world right um, mm -hmm. and they're drawing I think especially on Persian myth in this one hmm. uh, so kind of a wide ranging kind of open concept of pagan and occult tradition um and a lot to do with suffering and ideas of hell and stuff like that on this. Um, and uh, yeah, so so where else? What what did you, uh, what did you make of this? Well, so obviously this is analogous to Inferno, uh, as you said, in many ways, <clears throat> and this is in a lot of ways more of a modern black metal record than mm -hmm. Inferno was. Like, Inferno is kind of like using black metal te technique to do a weird thing. Whereas here, okay, this is a this is a black metal record. Um, I feel like the overwhelming, like, immediate influence is going to be Ruins of Everest. I mean, there's a lot of that on Inferno, but I think it's even more direct here. Um, so this fits very comfortably onto... Vaughn as a label, which in, in terms of modern black metal labels has a more distinct identity to it than nearly anything out there. You know, it's it's spacious, 
it's a little psychedelic. It, it pulls a lot of different influences from different corners of metal and outside of metal. Um, I'm going to say if there's one big thing that makes this very distinct from Inferno, it's that, well, one, there's, there's a lot of post-black on this and a lot of kind of straight post-rock stuff on occasion. Um, but a big thread that we both picked up on, and this is another part of a conversation we've had for you know a year now on the show, which is the continuing influence of Maglaw. Uh, because there is a lot of Maglaw on this record in terms of the guitar technique, as well as a similar array of influences. Because... You know, we talked about McGlaw, and you're the guy who kind of brought up the idea that, you know, McGlaw is really just using a lot of kind of like goth rock technique. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a very conscious effort on the part of this band to use that as well, you know, both from McGlaw and directly from the source. Uh, but that's something you would know about better than I would, but I've just, I hear a lot of immediate similarities in a lot of those guitar ideas. Uh- I can hear that for sure. I think I I think I heard more of the 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 Mugla vibe, um, but uh, I I think the, the Goths thing makes sense for sure. I wouldn't be surprised if they were getting that from the source. That might also account. I think a lot of the stuff that you may have heard as post, I kind of heard as Mugla Gothy whatever. But I okay. certainly certainly there are a lot of shimmering shimmering single string tram lines. And things like that. Well, right? at this point, you could almost say that what post-black metal actually is nowadays is McGlaw plus post-rock versus, you know, what it was before McGlaw really came onto the scene. They kind of, like, they accidentally hijacked post-black from outside of it. Yeah, no, know? that's that that's fair. That's a good point. So it does connect to all that for sure. Um, and, you know, I think other than that, right, this idea of sort of um, heavy, hi-fi, orthodox black metal, you know, if... If, like, um, our big marker for the more melodic side of polished modern BM is Megla, then probably Aosoth is the other side of the equation for the orthodox BM. And mm-hmm. I feel like that's probably a reference point here. I, I get what you're saying about the Ruins of Beverest, but do you mean... I, I think I get it in terms of, like, the overall vibe and scale of the album and the kind of ambition and... I don't know that I heard like particularly Ruins of Beverasty riffs, but maybe it comes together in that kind of... Actually, no, I, I did. I did. I mean, I think... I, I mean, you're I, correct. I did, I, I think... and also the kind of glistening gothy stuff is something that's always been on Ruins of Beverest, and especially on Thule Grimoires, so... Yeah, I, I would definitely say it's more of an, uh, an agglutinative thing, you know, mm-hmm. because, I mean, you can say, you know, a Ruins of Beverest riff, well, I mean, which album? You know, because uh, there's a, a shit ton of different kinds of ruins of Beverast riffs. And there's a shit ton of different kinds of riffs on this album as well. But I think the f- the very ornate, very sort of mystic quality yeah, yeah. of ruins of Beverast comes through here. Uh, the same way that it kind of does on Inferno. You know, huge in scale, mystical, you know, not really about good or evil kind of operating outside mm-hmm. of that, that kind of thing. Yeah, vast cathedral-esque spaces, really long songs. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that all makes sense. So I think we should kind of do a... Um, I kind of want to call a lateral, and uh, 
start the sampling with the last track. Um, okay. I'll move this up in the menu here. But um, this so the last track is called uh, Blood Good, which um, might mean Blood God, but maybe Good means something else. It depends on what I, God might have a have, a, have an O in it. I who knows Blood something. Um, uh, and um, this is you know the. The outro, interlude, ambient parts on this album are much more important than that would suggest. Basically, there's a lot of ambient stuff on this record that uh, is pretty central to the record. It's not, in the same way that with Ruins of Everest, it's not supposed to be filler. Um, yeah. And these guys are quite good at doing that stuff. Um, and I think, you know, uh, the the... You know, in some sense, it's cheating to rely too much on stuff from the press release, but sort of a it can be a shortcut to realizing things that are important about this record. So basically, the press release stresses that you know, dark ambient and sort of I would assume post-industrial and neo-folk stuff is important for this band. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that is kind of informing the album throughout, even when it's using black metal riffing. Um, so I wanted to get this in everyone's head so they can see this kind of part as more central to this band than it might seem. So this is from the beginning of uh, Blood Good.
like that. <laughs> that. That's definitely a lot more your wheelhouse than mine. That yeah. that's like that's got all that that neo folk stuff that it's like I. I, I respect, but I do not understand. <laughs> yeah, you don't feel it. Yeah, for sure. Well, um, yeah, so something like that. I mean, that would be a place where Coil would really be relevant. Um, I can like, see that, yeah. There's some, there are some really beautiful Coil tracks, um, like First Five Minutes After Death or At the Heart of It All. Um, really resonates with that. Also, I mean, Dead Can Dance is like a thing that... Uh, Although people don't always mention it as an influence, I think it's a huge touchstone for a lot of things in that scene. I mean, in terms of more recent stuff, it kind of sounds like Lamia Vox, who's a one-woman one artist located, I think, in Prague, um, but um, who does cool sort of epic voice stuff. Um, but uh, there you get, yeah, some kind of kind of sample-based... Uh, spacious you know um medieval sound and stuff right and that is maybe the moment where like the electronic or atmospheric elements become the most melodic it kind of takes mm -hmm. center stage but they exist throughout it and i would suggest that um a lot the black metal riffing on this record makes more sense if you think about it as doing things more like that than regular black metal riffing. Yeah, I understand that. Um, because as we'll get into, the the way these guys present their songs is very unusual. And I, I talked about that a little bit in the Inferno review uh, regarding... Uh, I mean, it's something that you kind of point out. You phrased it better than me. The idea that they are all about articulating this negative space around these very specific musical passages. There's, uh, I would say, an almost deliberately inorganic quality to the way a lot of this unfolds over the course of a song. There's not a lot of... There's not an effort to blend things in the way that is like typically the mark of like elegant metal songwriting because i don't think it doesn't making, it doesn't flow it doesn't yeah it doesn't flow but i was gonna say the caveat being clearly they just they don't have any interest in making elegant heavy metal songs so it requires you know me to reframe what it's about as a listener so it's like it's this is one of those cases where this is very well-made music that revolves around a structural conceit that's, like, super alien to me. So I'm hoping you'll be able to kind of bridge the gap, because there's there's a lot of stuff on this record that I really like, but there's also some, like, very off-putting kind of ideas to me. Um, yeah. But maybe it's... Maybe I'm just missing some of the, the knowledge of, say, like post-industrial or neo-folk stuff to really tie all this together well let's see I, I, okay you know you said um i'll see what i can do um you know like i i think you know the, the reasons you can't get so into this i think makes sense to me for sure um mm -hmm. you know it's it's it it's definitely uh it's definitely one of those records that's after such a specific and kind of deliberately alienating effect that if it's a man of taste can easily say it's not his cup of tea. 
there's there's um, a certain segment uh, of the listening population yeah. for whom this is going to be the album they pattern their whole lives after. You know <laughs> perhaps, what I mean? There's perhaps, there's yeah. there's certain people out there who are going to hear this and be like, "Okay, I'm done. This is this is the end of music. I'm going to make a band that just sounds like this and elaborates on these ideas." You know, it's just I, I can tell that just by listening to it. It's it's so weird to be like this is like objectively very good. But I, 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 it doesn't like connect it, with me oh, on an emotional it, level. It, it makes sense, you know. You've shown me things like that. I mean, I, I think so. Here, here, so like, basic ways of understanding what they value. They value sort of clarity, coldness, and remoteness, and mm-hmm. sort of extreme minimalism. And yeah, the idea that everything is constantly suggesting bigger spaces around it. Um, yeah. this is, this has what I, you know, Nietzsche would call it an Apolline aesthetic. This is power manifested through reserve composure, sort of, uh, sort of a harmony of form, but in a way that can be very stark and brutal. Um, I can see that. Yeah, I get and, that. And so, uh, and, and it relates, I think, to this sort of ascetic occult impulse here, right? This is supposed to be kind of meditative in a way. Um, on the flip side, and one way they achieve that is, like, we could put it, the funny way of putting it is, this band simply isn't, like, not only is this, well, this is not riff-oriented music, right? But when we listened to uh, the Inferno, right? Mm-hmm. That's not riff-oriented music in the way that it's either about these grooves that I was talking about, or, as you were talking about, just these washes of texture that just all blend into each other, right? Mm-hmm. This is not riff-oriented music, and yet it makes you relentlessly focus on the riffs. Melody, it's right? yeah, it's very, right? it's, it's yeah, it's it's and the riffs. If you evaluate them as riffs, even a couple of years ago, if I'd come to this without, I I guarantee I would have not given it enough time, and I would have just picked out a sample, and I've been like, wow, these are bad riffs. Um, <laughs> like the band is what they're. You'll hear very few things on this that there are some killer riffs on here, but they're few and far between. And this band seems almost scornful of the idea of trying to write sick riffs. Um, (laughs) Or even, like, conventional melodies. They're, like, what you get here is mostly, like, tropes from Orthodox and Migla guitar that are, like, pared down to their barest essentials. And, uh... Not necessary. Sometimes that can be in this like elemental gut punch way, right? Like here's my Iljarn riff with two two chords, right? But this mm-hmm. is much more like a, a kind of a remote minimalism. Um, so let's a lot of the 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 sort of difficult pleasures on here or whatever have to do with things like structure. So let's it's very architectural structural music. Everything is like mm-hmm. stuff in space networking. So let's listen to like. Uh, we're, we both sampled Siodandi Blood, which means that's an important one, right? Yeah. Um, and I think we've got back-to-back samples again. So yeah, those are both going to be kind of long, both going to be kind of long samples. Um, uh, the death metal guy got a really sick, one of the few big climax moments on the record. Um, I, I sniff them out like a hog <laughs> hunting for truffles. <laughs> you, you got them both, and they're both very important. Um here, what you're going to hear is a, uh, the beginning of this sample foreshadows the climax riff that the death metal guy picks. 
Um, and what, what's going to link that they're not the same riff, but where you're going to hear a sort of migla technique, kind of like charming arpeggio with uh, changes in the root that make it sound really epic, basically. Um, yeah. And then you're going you're gonna to hear it building, and you're going to think, oh, here we go towards the with hearts towards none drop, and then it's going to not do that. So uh, <laughs> let's, let's fo- follow this and see where it goes. it's funny hearing that again because i was actually i thought about sampling the section that you sampled because i was like i was trying to capture the climax but i didn't realize just how long they do the setup for kind of the climactic part because i remember the uh that kind of like whispered spoken word part which i really liked um one thing one thing worth mentioning tom with that like there was like four tom or something that sounds like a shaman drum or something yeah, one thing I, I, I got to give these guys tremendous credit for is they have a better understanding of dynamics than almost anything in black metal. It really reminds me of um, <clears throat> uh, one time I was at a, a festival with a lot of like bigger indie bands and I saw uh, I saw Swans and uh, 
uh, seeing swans, like, I'm not a huge fan of newer swans, but the way they played, you know, the very subtle changes in, in volume and these sort of like dynamic, deeply kind of deep cut jazzy musician-y things was really impressive to see executed live. And I think these guys do that really well. And I, that's that's something that is very hard to do in extreme metal proper because it's based off of a sort of brick wall of intensity. But these guys really make it happen. I think that's a very good point. Yeah, there's... um, Yeah, we really get, like, decrescendos and crescendos, and they're doing it not by twiddling knobs, but by really finely tuning just the articulation of the plane. Well, um, it, this the fact that this has an ab- absurdly expensive production job is part that, of that's, it. That's true, and you can see why it took forever. Um... Uh, but also they, um, you know, yeah, and I mean, on a practical level, what that just means is that if you, there are really prominent volume spikes, like it will get way louder than you expect it to. Um, mm-hmm. uh, and so, and so, yeah, that's a kind of, you know, cla- jazz, classical music-y thing. And another way that's like that is that this whole section, we're inclined to talk about it as a build and it is because in some sense because we know where it's going right because you and i have heard this before and we know there's going to be a really big part at the end um it has directional movement to it but it's kind of like classical in that the development is what you're it's like there are builds in metal and they're pretty instrumental often it's like mm-hmm. got to get us to this part right um or even like a pre-chorusy part in a dissection song it could be like functional right um mm-hmm. this is a uh, this is part of what you're supposed to listen to. Uh, and it's pretty interesting hearing them take that first thing that's like the sort of migla arpeggios or even post-rock thing, clip off where you expect the build to be, but then the rhythms, the, and then they start just cycling through different roots, basically. Like they lower it a lot, and then it gradually starts rising, I think, is the general arc of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and each new picking pattern is a bit different, but the rhythms are carrying through. And, yeah. you know, probably the first time I listened through, I, I, I missed that. But at some point I was listening to it and I heard that and I was like, oh, this is really cool. And part of the thing is like, not only is the development supposed to be engaging, but like that first sort of thing that sim- seems like it's the epic build, they stretch that out like very long and you can hear the drummer accenting it and playing with it in a way that like marks it more as like a thing that you should get into it's mm-hmm. like like that buildy part is itself a sound object that's supposed yes. to be like intrinsically enjoyable does that make sense yeah no i the build <clears throat> part at the beginning how's the, the the build part at the beginning is that actually the closest we get to a hook until your part comes in well yeah no i think i think that's one place where you know, getting back to the comparisons between the two bands, this is very similar to Inferno in that mm. they really like using a blend of metallic and non-metallic technique to execute music that is structurally very remote from extreme metal. Mm-hmm. Um, because, like, these are not... Um, these are, I say this is more of a black metal record than Inferno 
is because mm-hmm. yeah, it's just it's got more of the hallmarks of that, but it's weird to describe. Furnask is a black metal band that is not really playing black metal songs. No, I agree. If, yeah. if that's coherent at all, a thought. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The general the general spirit and impulse is there, and like the style of playing music is there. But they they do not work as yes. If you expect them to, if you hold these to the criteria of black metal songs, they will not uh, succeed by those criteria. Right? They're sort yeah. of aiming at something different definitely um so let's let's follow up your sample so we're going to continue right where you left off again like we did with inferno i don't know there's something in the water today Mm -hmm. um and here is kind of the big climactic moment on this track which is basically a long fernask's interpretation of a post-black section Mm -hmm. um but here is the first point on the album at least for me where the maglai influence really started to come to the forefront now, that band would not execute this passage the same way. They would make it snappier. They'd make mm-hmm. it poppier. They'd make it more of a hook, where these guys still want to extend that drama even through kind of the big crowd-pleaser moment. Mm-hmm. But the 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 essence of like these gloomy goth rock melodies that are going to come in is absolutely something off of exercises in futility or uh, age of excuse you know later magla so uh let's uh let, let's let's see where it goes from here
it's so it's interesting the way these guys execute the big climax because it kind of sneaks up on you. Um, you huge. We're continuing with that sort of preparatory post rock. I mean, that's a very like almost like Godspeed you Black Emperor thing to do. You know, just sit on these these big crescendos like looping into themselves like a like you know like a like a shepherd's tone over and over again. Um, but then, you know, the moment where it all realizes itself is when the drums kick into a steady double kick beat. And then when that happened, I said to you, it's like, there's the McGlaw right there. That's where it all kind of comes together. Yes. Um, yeah, yeah. The, uh, that's where, yeah, that's where you can like headbang. Right. But I, I feel, I feel like Miglot totally could do that, and it'd be cool if they did. But I feel like, I, you know, what a lot of listeners would have been expecting there, right, is the shift from the sort of eighth note, you know, sort of, da, 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 you know, um, the sort of, like, staggered 6-8 blast to the sort mm-hmm. of, like, six, or just to, the like, the subdivided version of it, right, to just a straight-up blast beat, right? Or um, even just, like, taking that riff and when the double kick comes in, just turning it into a tremolo stream. Yeah, even just that, right? So neither of those things happens. Um, and usually, often, you'd get both. And so, instead, yeah, instead of releasing into a blast thing, it releases into this kind of head-bangy downbeat thing, but all very crisp. And yeah, so that's what you were saying about the guitars. That's a good point, right? That's not a trem riff. Those are like um, eighth notes, and they're all being downstroked. Um, mm-hmm. And to me, kind of the coolest part of that, I mean, I, I like the big payoff moment, too, but, like, to me, the part before it where you just hear, like, um, the drummer is doing this half-blasting with the guitars, and they're, like, really synced up. This is a, like, this is not at all, like, a technical record, but it's extremely musician-y, right? And... Yeah, you, you, the, have to be, you have to be really good at your instruments to make stuff this simple sound the way it does. Yeah, they're really like um, when they're just doing those eighth note blasts and the down and the eighth note down picking. They're like, they have a ton of it, to them. It's as if they have like a ton of sonic space to work with, and mm-hmm. you can hear them sort of like expanding and contracting each of those pulses. Um, like the the guitarist and drummer are almost playing a game of like how locked in they can be. Um, like <laughs> every downstroke hits with a snare, right? Um, and the uh, the snare is not like it's not an even half blast, right? You're not doing better it, right? Each one is like weighted towards where the pick falls. It's um yeah, it's it's, it's, it's not like a conti- it's not a continuous like da 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 you know da 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 right? It's uh well yeah you need to uh. It's one of those things where it's like you need to be you need to be able to play music ten times as technical as this to be able to play this level of music with that control. Like even just listening yeah, to it yeah, like yeah, yeah, yeah. like I, I you know, I, I'm far from a technical guitarist, but I can just listen to the guitar performance on this and be like, Okay, this guy just has amazing left hand tonal control. Mm-hmm. Like he just <laughs> Yes. You know, just like perfect, like unwavering fingering on the left hand, like 
you know the the slight there's for these guys in this in this band there's no room for slight organic variation no we want these tones to be exactly the way we want them that's true it's exactly the way you want them and yet it has this like uh yeah, each one of those tones has this very, mem- you know, or that tone that is repeated has this very memorable shape to it. It's got this particular ringing inflection. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, yeah, so, I mean, I, I think that part is awesome. Also, about the specific shape of the melody, I think we were... Um, I said to the death metal guy when it kicked in, you know, when it kicks in, you don't think that's even going to be the big melody. It seems like a kind of dropout, lurching, funeral doom-esque riff that will take us into something else. But in that Mm. moment, you can hear that it really sounds like a Ruins of Everest riff. Yeah, that's very Ruins. Yeah, bong, 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 when it's just hit by itself like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just the, the the incredible space in the cathedral, yeah. you know. Yes, and the oh, and the other thing about that sort of um, descending um, when, when it when it locks into the groove part, especially at the end, that really reminds me of Spire, uh, whose yes, album yes. we reviewed a few weeks ago, or more than a few weeks a few ago months now. ago. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh. that was towards the um, beginning of the year. But no, Spire is definitely. Uh, that's that's another record that we both really loved and had a similar thing to this record where it's using a, an array of extreme metal techniques to make very not structurally metal music. You could almost put... I think the first Spire album is really close to this in a lot of ways, but the, the mm, latest okay. Spire record, the latest Spire record, which has this kind of... You could almost put that immediate Like, it's hard to even... The, like even though this is so different from the Inferno, you could actually plot the latest Spire record right between them. Oh, yeah. It would be kind of a, a gradient in a way. Because it's got the guitar work and the rhythms are a lot like this. It has a certain kind of like subtlety and restraint. And yet there are also just all these like gut punch heavy metal moments on it. Right? It's more... The Spire is more of a metal record than either of these... But like, yeah, it the, has the Spire, kind of... <laughs> Spire is uh, the the latest Rush record that yeah. uh, nobody has paid attention it's, to. <laughs> but it's it's got sort of um, it's got reptile brain satisfaction in the way that it's got the, big uh, moments. Yeah, that the Inferno does. Yeah. Um. All right. So uh, to wrap things up, last sample. Uh, so we've been sampling a lot of these kind of esoteric moments just because I think that's where the heart of this band kind of lies a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. But there's a lot of stuff that we haven't sampled, which is to a degree, very straightforward black metal. So I sampled one of those moments. Um, this is off a later track called Hellrigan. And uh, so it's not something you hear a lot on this record, but occasionally these guys can whip out just like huge black metal riffs out of nowhere. And it catches you really off guard because so much of the guitar performance on this is very tightly controlled and very delicate in a way that when they, you know, just start ripping out like a really vicious riff, uh, it has kind of an outsized effect. So we're going to listen to a little sample of this and like the opening riff is like, okay, this is a, a pretty standard orthodox figure. 
I, I think it's just like, it's like certain grind riffs. Everyone has access to these. This is one of those orthodox riffs that everyone's mm-hmm. allowed to have on their album. But then after that, they get into this like super thrashy kind of Marduk passage that just came out of fucking nowhere on this record. And it was so strong. It made me kind of rethink my whole interpretation of the record. So, uh, let's, uh, let's give that a shot. So yeah, out of nowhere, giant fucking like climactic Marduk riff. And it's like, if it, I mean, if it weren't for that like keening, like constant, like super high tremolo on the lead mm-hmm. guitar there, that's just, that's just like modern Marduk right there. And like one of the best riffs off a modern Marduk record. And it's like hearing that, I was like, uh, why are we, why are we not doing more parts like that because like there's there's moments throughout this record where periodically um uh, you know we've talked a little bit this year especially about how orthodox appears to be splitting a little bit into uh these guys that are going further into abstraction like blood us nord style and guys that are getting into a sort of war metal energy with those Mm -hmm. orthodox melodic ideas and this was a moment where they were doing the latter, and I was like, you guys are so good at that. And there's a few more of those dotted around the record. 
And it's like, those are easily my favorite parts on the album. But then it's like, it's kind of a toss up. I mean, is it worth for the band? Is it worth sacrificing kind of the breadth of what they're doing for the stuff like that? And I mean, my answer is yes, because I just immediately love that shit. But I mean, for them, probably no. And for most listeners, probably no. Yeah, I get what you mean. I mean, like, uh, I think like, yeah, I think I think for them, it's like you got to play up the thing that is most unique about you. However, um, I wouldn't mind hearing a few more parts like that. I, I don't know their I don't know Forn at all. They're like 2016 record. I think I I checked it out. But anyway, point being, I checked it out because of the pagan vibe. But then it was like kind of orthodoxy sounding, and I was just super not what I was looking for then. So I just you know, I have only a vague memory of what it sounded like, but I think it sounded more like the blasty stuff um yeah i i think i really i like uh about that riff i think the marduk thing is totally right also though the way it's being played with this kind of um later marduk does do that kind of droney stuff um or like the kind of octaves or or like single string drone thing Mm -hmm. but like the thing it really reminds me of is halfway between Marduk and Migla, which would make it sound like um, a version of Sulfur Aeon that doesn't make your teeth rot. <laughs> Hi, this is Taylor from Crushing the Scepter, and you're listening to Terminus Podcast. All right, so uh, the the death metal guy and I are uh, back from debating the parameters of outlaw rock off air. Um, to, uh, <laughs> As to, always, yeah. To bring you the debut recording, don't know if it's a demo, don't know if it's an EP. Who knows these days? By Secret Fire. This is the Old Beast Law, a cool title, um, <laughs> and this is out on a new label called Throne of May. If you want the hard copy. Uh, cool tapes if you want the digital it is also on Bandcamp. um that is uh the death metal guy had a very hard time finding it because it's like ungoogleable um yeah i just got a bunch of shit about lord of the rings which i don't know enough about to understand if that's relevant or not (laughs) yeah no i i i was there was this 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 uh cleveland holy terror band called ascension who i had their mp3s from the blogspot days and then I literally could not find them again after I lost them until they did a reissue like a month ago, you know, um, like, like for years, it just ungoogleable. Um, uh, but, um, yeah, so this is secretfire.bandcamp.com. Okay. Um, yeah. is the, the base. So, um, yeah, so this, this dude's got a, uh, he, he's got an illustration, uh, He's got. He's, he does some like. Uh, he, he does art, and I follow his art account on Instagram. Um, and he's had this project in the wings for a while, I guess. He's done a couple more dark ambient releases on it, but this is the debut of the black metal version of the project. Uh, you know. So here the idea is, you know, if with Furnask it was kind of, if if at the beginning of the show it's kind of, uh, Inferno was sort of orthodox bm via kind of jammy 
electronic and sort of krautrock stuff and at the middle we had sort of fernask with kind of uh black black orthodoxy black metal via kind of vast resonant dark ambient and whatnot and sort of post-industrial now we're at black metal that feels that's sort of really deriving its mood and a lot of the themes from the more kind of neo-folk wing of things um it's got this kind of um you could certainly associate it with all the sort of uh classic bands the death in june the current 93 uh certainly that applies here and you know i guess there are deeper cuts i could try for but you know um sonhagal good example um but um it's also closely linked. I mean, another thing I really associate this with mood-wise is, is a band that's been popular lately, which is Monastery, which has mm. this kind of... It's dungeon synth, but like dungeon synth rooted in these sort of deeper, older kinds of electronic stuff. Um, you know, dungeon synth with a connection to neo-folk or industrial music or whatever and dark ambient dungeon dungeon synth by somebody who likes electronic music as opposed to somebody who wanted to start a black metal band but didn't have a guitar um, <laughs> and and you know uh what's cool about monastery is it has this kind of vibe of like yeah some of it's kind of some of it's dark um but it really is more about envisioning a pagan future and in a kind of uh, in a kind of like a benevolent or uh, exciting or beautiful way. Um, now, th- and a lot of a lot of the music on this has this kind of misty, kind of uh, serene, kind of mystical quest vibe. Um, that is juxtaposed with um, the title of the record and the cover, which shows um, a bunch of knights in black armor implementing the old beast law. Um, <laughs> that that is that this is an actual medieval, uh, ac- actual medieval like I guess probably wood panel painting of uh, knights putting a bunch of women and children to the sword. Um, mm-hmm. So there's definitely an undercurrent of violence here, right? As same with a lot of the neo folk stuff, but it's the, oh, the the main focus of the record is kind of more life affirming and exuberant, um, and uh, yeah. So I've got some ideas about what this sounds like. Um, I think this record's kind of a Rorschach test. Um, Mm-hmm. I can get into it in a bit. What, what what did you just make of all this? Did you like it? Did you? <clears throat> I like this more than I expected to. Um, this is one of those. This is one of those cases where I like this so much. I'll be more critical than you usually hear me because I think there's just small kinks to work out. But if those can be worked out, we'll have like a new like superstar in a way no that makes Um, sense that's about how i feel about it too yeah so so it's interesting so you know i didn't really look up too much you know until i was done listening and then uh you know at the end of it i realized oh this is a canadian project which is interesting because i for some reason i immediately thought this was british um Mm -hmm. 
there's something very Anglo-Saxon about this. Uh, and I associated some of the melodic ideas with uh, something we were actually talking about off-air, which is Spider God. Uh, some of these um, really ornate, sort of Victorian flourishing melodies around this core of sort of traditional, like, raw black metal. Um I think that this is the main guy behind it because this is like a main guy and some other dudes kind of floating in doing session stuff, right? Uh, well, it's got a consistent drummer. It's credited to uh, composed, performed, produced, and mixed by Barguest, who's got a sick, uh, very Sword Boy Summer picture of himself with a uh, balaclava and some, uh, I don't know, holly around his head and a fucking claymore. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, but drums are performed by someone named Izzy Langlais. I haven't, uh, I haven't looked up that person on Metal Archives. Maybe I should. Um, uh, but uh, yeah, and maybe a few other session people. But it's basically yeah. a one-man project. But yeah, so I, I, I think this guy has a, um, again, connecting back to Furnask, I think this guy has uh, an incredible understanding of how to fold kind of goth rock ideas into black metal without resorting to goth rock parts, you know, mm-hmm. which I think is very important uh, because I think, you know, the, it's funny, you know, talking about, oh, black metal folding in goth rock. I mean, they've been doing that the whole time. I mean, going back to something like Forgotten Woods, obviously that is like half fucking fields of the Nephelum mm-hmm. <laughs> at the end of the day. But uh, at the same time, it's like, you know, we're in a new phase of metal right now you know we've we've exited the age of aquarius so to speak and i think that there's a lot of like stuff starting now in a new form um just in like the year that we've been doing this podcast and i think one of those is like how do we fold goth rock fully into black metal um and you know the initial phase of that is just having goth rock parts in uh in your black metal song which is obviously it's going to be novelty fun for people but then you know the real step comes in how do we fully integrate these things and there's a couple ways to do that like way the the first episode of this year i brought on that uh vergeblichite record mm-hmm. which yeah, yeah, used yeah. goth rock and black metal in a a very unusual very interesting way um but now this guy i feel is doing that in a way where we can really move forward with it it's like how do we take the lessons of goth rock guitar technique and fully incorporate them into black metal. Um, but the other thing that this has, along with all the hall—excuse mo- me, all the high-minded stuff—is it's just got like big heavy metal moments, you know? Um, yes. Yeah. 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 Those are sort of a, a, a. It's like those are like a pedal point he returns to throughout. They're like touchstones. Yeah. Like. And I mean, like a big thing for me was I, I was surprised that you didn't say it because I think Graveland is all over this. I didn't really hear that. Yeah, um, Graveland. Well, if I Graveland looked, after you said that, I looked for it and I could hear the power, the really sick power chord blast riff at the end of the record. Definitely is a little bit, a little bit Gravelandy, but I, I guess really more in the that. sense, more in the sense that Graveland is raw pagan music wrapped around a a sort of fundamental heavy metal core. You know, I, that I guess I don't hear Graveland as very heavy metal y. That's interesting because I hear it as very heavy metal. 
Maybe, yeah, maybe some of the stuff on Following the Voice of Blood, which is the one I played for you, you know, or the one we did the bonus episode on, because that has some of these very kind of bang-your-head moments on it. Well, I mean, what about later stuff like Creed of Iron or something like that? That's got big fucking epic heavy metal moments, I feel. Yeah, yeah, to a certain extent, but structurally it's really different. Like, uh, like Fire Chariot of Destruction certainly will, like, scratch metal itches, right? You can headbang to it. It's got really big sound. The concept of epic there. His concept of epic clearly owes something to Manowar. Right? Yeah, um, I would say like Manowar. Epic battle. Graveland. Manowar by way of Graveland, I think, is a big thing. Um... But uh, additionally, you know, apart from Graveland, something I came back to something a lot, you could say it, is solstice in terms of the heavy metal parts and in terms of the general mood of this album, and that that's the Man of War thing goes into solstice. It's a in mm-hmm. terms of the mood of this album, solstice is new dark age. This kind of like, you know, somewhat somewhat dark and sword filled, but kind of exuberant vision of the Middle yeah. Ages. And then another thing that I wanted to touch on, you know, apart from the Graveland, was a. Uh, Winterfelleth, who have, I think, sort of accidentally become very important in black metal. Now, obviously, we've definitely got differing opinions about Winterfelleth at various phases, um, but I think we could probably both agree that they've become subtly influential to a lot of black metal, especially on kind of the melodic and somewhat pagan side. Would you agree? Definitely. I Yeah, so, like, as far as, um, yeah, I, I, I get that this this album definitely has a bit of an, an English feel to it, in the, the solstice way, in the Death in june way, in the, uh, it just in all, all kinds of the sort of uh, neo-medievalist reference points. You know, it's, you know, his label is Throne of May, right, tapping into those mm-hmm. ideas about, like, May Day festivals or whatever. He's got like William Blake art on the on the label page. Um, that all makes sense to me. Winter filleth, I don't know if I heard in particular, but definitely like filtered ideas of Slavic black metal. The thing mm-hmm. it really reminds me of, like uncannily reminds me of, is uh, House of First Light. Mm-hmm. Like I don't know whether he was listening to that stuff at all like as far as i could tell from his instagram he you know the, he like listens to dark throne a lot <laughs> like <laughs> but um uh but like specifically so the um i don't know like specifically you know to some degree you know maybe some 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 of the better known stuff like sanguine eagle or whatever but more like will scarstad's projects like yellow eyes or usta lost or imperial trumpet um mm-hmm. All of which have this kind of gothy arpeggio based guitar, but not quite in the way that is uh, not quite in the way a little weirder sounding than you'd expect. Um, strange harmonies um, and a kind of feeling of deliberate disorientation that you also get on Lamb's stuff, right? And that you got, especially with that old. One of the originary bands of that scene was Vord, when their specific concept of it was like goth black metal. And it had these gothy arpeggio things, but like really crazy sounding. Mm-hmm. Um, and with this atmosphere of this, pursuing this atmosphere of confusion, which I think is big on this record. 
Um, and I think my samples, like, one of my first sample focuses on that. But maybe we should, it's late in the night, we're talking. Yeah, we should probably, <laughs> we samples. should probably actually yeah. talk about music. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so both of us took samples off the two, two of the same tracks, um, which is interesting. I don't think we've ever done that before. It's like four samples off two songs. Um, and they're basically adjoining same. Oh, no, the second one isn't, but close enough. So the first one, uh, this is like three main tracks in an intro. We're going to go to the first main track. This is called Mercurial Hammer. And uh, coming from me, this is going to be a pretty long sample, but I think it's important to hear how these guys really develop melodies over the course of pretty long, uh, long sections of time. Um, and there's just a lot of wonderful stuff to talk about this. I'll, I'll shut up and let's just, let's listen to some Mercurial Hammer, you know? It was interesting while we were talking, you know, because 
like this is uh like you said up front it's kind of a rorschach test because like one of those big riffs really scanned to me as super winter filleth and you said not at all with the way they were harmonizing it was very house of first light to you and then my thing is well you know house of first light is usually so intensely slavic in origin and i don't really hear that so much here so it's very interesting the different perspectives we have on the same piece well winter filleth is also intensely slavic in origin i mean the common root there would be drudk and drudk has more sophisticated chords than winter filleth right you get that kind of you get like big dense chords you get weird shit like i don't know sevenths and stuff in there i don't know yeah Um, but at the same time beyond my comprehension um, well, House of First Light, though, usually wouldn't do, like, a giant double kick drop like these guys do. You no, know? They, they do. They do. The end of this, uh, the, the, the giant double kick drop reminds me of, like, the, the payoff parts in the last Sanguine Eagle records. Oh, okay. Um, I can see it's that. It's, like, uh, the, they're just very deferred, but they also, like, have this moment... Uh, like this guy will... Okay, this guy throws in... Yeah, we got one of those big heavy metal riffs at the end. That was sick. Um, he throws them in more, but those sort of nods to like big heavy metal moments do happen on House of First Light records. Yeah. But again, like I mean, you but you're familiar with Yellow Eyes, right? You you probably know them better than me, maybe. Uh, um, not no, I know Yellow Eyes a little bit through like an internet friend, and I've checked it out, and it's like it was interesting the description because what I heard of Yellow Eyes, and this would have been years ago, so maybe mm-hmm. they've changed. I remember it as being like pretty arty and dissonant in a way Um, yeah which is not something i get from this at all well weird druidk chords and weird druidk chords kind of floating around um away from the tonal centers you usually expect in this stuff and i hear that very much throughout this this is I think there's a lot of, like, chromaticism in this guy's writing. It's just not in any given riff. All the individual riffs are pretty, like, classically melodic. But I I can get into it with my sample. What else did you want to say? Well, so uh, just a couple quick notes. So one, um, I love the clean vocal stuff here. That's that's outstanding. And I love that the way they come across, they're they're big, clean vocal passages, but they are not... um, they're not executed in a heavy metal way necessarily, um, but the effect they have is undoubtedly super heavy metal in the context of the music, which I think is very cool. Um, I mean, bro, that, that, you know where those are from, right? I mean, it's, it's I the, it's it's the Bergtat. Uh, it's like uh, it's the beginning oh, of Bergtat. It? Yeah, I no, I always listen. I just listen to Nottens Madrigal. So <laughs> all right. It's no, it's so these big Gregorian, but what's that is another big influence here is that for that Olver record. And it's, it's a weird record because I was talking about this with Bullgod. It's a weird record because it's very difficult to be influenced by it. Mm -hmm. Anything you can take that specifically evokes that record almost evokes it too much. And so usually when you get vocals like that, you can think, oh, they're doing the Olver thing. So, like, uh, hmm. a band that did that, an example, a, uh, a, a good example of this was uh, Kaivum did it. Like, on just this hmm. mega brutal, like, black metal record, they just threw in the Olver vocals at the end, and it was pretty cool. Um, a bad version of this would be, um, what's, uh, fucking Mirker. 
Um, there's she literally patterns a song on what one of those Berktat songs down to the same sort of cascading uh, Gregorian chant vocal. But this guy sort of gets closer than anyone I've heard to taking some of the ideas from Berktat and just making them working using them as his own kind of vocabulary. Like because yeah. even just in the most dumb basic sense of like there are other parts that sound like this on the record. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like there yeah, are, yeah. like just the, uh, like the Gregorian chant vocals, they come back and they have different shapes to them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I think it's a, uh, I think it's beautiful. And, uh, y- you know me, I'm a uh, very picky when it comes to clean vocals and extreme metal, but he fucking absolutely kills it here. Um, and then the last point before we move on, this is going to be one of my kind of critical things structurally. Mm-hmm. Do we need that middle break where everything fades out? Because I think it would be more powerful if he excised some of that stuff and just immediately go into that next triumphant riff. I kind of like the idea of, oh, what if we did this music but totally nonstop? Totally just fucking 100% all the time leave behind all the sort of like traditional mores of good songwriting or tasteful songwriting and it's just fucking continuous from first to last maybe something like that it's definitely telling that like um i think we basically just in terms of our sample we basically just clipped out the dropout in the middle um oh no there was a dropout during my sample but there's uh, another kind of pseudo dropout between these two though yeah yeah, I mean, I think those dropouts are very, they're very important to the aesthetic he's going for, but you're right that they're, like, I feel like part of this music, it's supposed to be mysterious, it's supposed to be um, uh, disorienting, is a word I'll keep mm-hmm. coming back to with this. Yeah. Um, and... In that sense, I get why he's doing it, but I agree there are legitimate questions to ask about how exactly do you execute this vision. I think this is a band where the vision is crystal clear to him, mm-hmm. and you and I can both basically also see it. Like, the the hole is there. This guy started with the hole. The parts mm-hmm. need some refining, and then once the parts are refined, the hole will become even clearer. Um, but yes. So, so here's a sample that speaks to that, then, in another way. It's, it's exactly the same concern you're getting at, but in a little different way. So um, this is just so, okay, we're going to come back in that, you know, uh, basically in Heavy Metal Land, in that 6-8 chug thing again. Um, but then it's going to release into this more airy stuff, and we're going to get into, when I talk about that kind of suspended or hovering or floating feel, I think you'll hear what I mean. Um, and okay. that, Yeah.
drop, bro. <laughs> and so, you know, there's a moment where I, I very much agree with you about sort of just doing the more, uh, going for the more sort of uh, forthright, less mannered approach. And just like, let us hear more of that really sick part instead of fading yeah. it out. Um, but, you know, the atmospheric stuff on the rest of the track is cool, but you could just delay it by a minute and have that minute filled by rocking out with that fucking sick solo. Um, but, um, but, but what, what the part that's interesting is the part before then, um, where it kind of takes off. Um, and so first is a thing about the riffing, right? Is that I think the, the overall principle in the riffing is like, it's highly chromatic, not in the sense that there are a bunch of ugly half steps, Mm -hmm. right like every phrase kind of follows fits into a major or minor scale and has something to do with riff forms we know but like if you think about the but often they're falling on he's got this dense web of like i don't know like you know better than me chorused out guitar and probably synth in the background marking the chords yeah there, there's something like that. Yeah, he's often playing to the weirdest or highest tension intervals in the chord, things like that. Um, mm-hmm. He'll like uh, so like a riff like da 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 da. You know that's all in key, but it doesn't really uh, kind of jumping around in a weird way. Um, it's not the riffs don't seem to like lock in around root notes, strong tones, or like even lock into sort of traditional melodic shapes, whether those are coming from metal riffs or from folk or classical or any of these other references um, or goth. No, I I agree I, because yeah. I think that's that's something you hit on that I think is my big question about this music, which is <clears throat> on one hand the sort of diffuse nature of these songs is what makes them special. That is the personality of this band. At the same time, by doing that, he walks this tightrope of... And I would say, for the most part, he sticks it. I I, I think for the majority of the time, he pulls it off. But like, there's like a moment on that sample where you can hear it's like... Ooh, they're not really sure where this is going. Right uh, you, yeah, you heard it too. Yes. Um, yeah. When it, I mean, you mark it in the notes where they kick back into the blast, and he's still floating with that same sort of, uh, like you said, in key but very strange sort of arrangement. And then and it's like you know there was there was supposed to be something else there. There's like five or six notes after it, and in those five or six notes, this isn't you know I, you know it sounds like we're getting really you know really autistic about this because we are right but um uh, yeah because and, we know, like this so much yeah we, d- we don't want to like obviously it's you know as a critic you don't want to second guess the artist on a minute level but you know like well we're we're doing yourself, it. that's my favorite thing <laughs> <laughs> but like but basically like yeah you can just hear a moment where the guitar melody like gets kind of lost and it, it's like a thing you hear in post black songs often is like there's a glistening glistening tremolo melody that's kind of searching for where it's supposed to go but the thing is constantly is like the basic all the architecture of this is so damn solid 
that like you get to this meandering diffuse moment and then you hear where it's going it is going someplace and you get that massive drop right yeah it's just a matter of how exactly is that being filled in and like some of that airy diffuse wandering quality you really want and it's like how do you make this music mystic quest and wander without like getting lost or going down a weird sort of side path that just leads to you know like um some trolls you know Um, (laughs) and not not the trolls you're looking for um, no, I think no, I I think you're pretty much like on the money about all of it. I I think the 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 ultimate question really does come down to you know maintaining this very delicate balance and you know kind of deciding in a way what direction this is going to go because this is a guy who can do he's kind of between a rock and a hard place because when you're doing melodies that mostly refuse to do traditional, for lack of a better term, epic Mm -hmm. black heavy metal melodies, which are foundational to a lot of the things that we enjoy. Mm -hmm. Um, When you refuse to do that, that's fine, and that's respectable. But it means you kind of need to have like twice as many riffs as you ordinarily do. And this guy has twice as many riffs. There's so much going on in these fucking songs. But it also means that walking that tightrope, if you slip a little bit or one riff doesn't really stick where it needs to, mm-hmm. I guess what I'm saying is he's taken this very punishing path to writing this kind of music. Well said. Yes, he's set himself a challenge. He's set himself a serious challenge because I, I, I know there's ways to write these songs in ways that are easier and more immediately pleasing and would probably get him on a pretty big black metal label very quickly, just with the chops that he has, you know, but he's taking a very hard path instead. And that comes with its own problems. Yeah. So it's really just a matter of like some of these problems still need some working out. I mean, you can hear that the method is something like, um, you know, the method is something like outside inside, diffuse and mm-hmm. airy locked more in and like you know you hear it at that big heavy metal riff at the end or on on the death metal guy's sample right he can lock in around a tonal center he can give you just a a sick charging dorian scale pedal point chug riff right he can do the yeah. swords riffs um but um <laughs> the, the swords riffs yeah i know what you mean but it's yeah, fun. yeah 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 <laughs> um but like but but the first part of the record really definitely accentuates this kind of wandering, misty stuff. Um, so the, the ultimate question is, okay, you know, like, uh, can he pull out some barnstorming, you know, uh, sort of vicious trem riffs? And actually, the answer is yes. Um, so let's go to the beginning of Sunshaft Apparition, which I think you and I would probably agree is like, Pound for That's pound the best the song. It's yeah, it's yeah, and this is where the whole idea seems to be. There's some sort of narrative going on in the whole mm-hmm. record, I think. And this is like, okay, here's the black metal song. Uh, <laughs> and uh, so yeah, let's go to about 50 seconds into this.
Aha, uh-huh. gorgeous Baroque violin melody, go burr. <laughs> this actually, well, this is funny. This is one of the most uh, French-sounding passages on an album that doesn't actually have a lot of them. Yeah, I could hear that. It's definitely, yeah, it's definitely consistent with the French mood. Uh, it sounds like, really, the melody really reminds me of, um, like, just, like, Vivaldi. Like, something on, mm-hmm. like, the Four Seasons or something. Like, uh mm-hmm. Definitely Southern European, um, and it's got like uh, it's not, and you know, like that kind of riff is just not super. Doesn't I could you know a French band could write it right, but that's that's a weird riff. It's oriented around leads. It achieves a kind of hypnotic repetition through these little uh, kind of ar- arpeggios. The um. But it's and it's got two lines crossing each other. Like, could you hear that? The count, the the sort of counterpoint on that is just like really cool. Oh yeah, no, it's a it's like, a wonderful, wonderful passage. Like, like the beginning of the riff, the guitar that's in the foreground at the beginning of the riff becomes the harmony part on the second part of it. It's like you know, like a helix or something. Um, mm-hmm. It's really just that. See, like, and also, like, for so much of the record, right, he's, like, rejecting traditional melody forms, right? Rejecting the kind of, like, way that black metal melodies will talk to metal or classical or whatever. There you get, like, oh, here's a melody that has the kind of traditional quality that taps into deep history in the way, like, the the great black metal tram riffs are supposed to. Um, mm-hmm. So... That's fucking cool. I mean, also, you know, a cool thing is that there's a kind of way that that riff has a kind of, I think, ties in nicely to the album's ethos, which is, it's not, this record's a little bit difficult. You can't place it at any one point in time. There's no, like, uh, it's not themed on any era or something right there's like you get these gregorian chant vocals that are kind of medieval you get persistent just medieval vibes right then you get this kind of like more baroque or classical sounding thing um and you get and the the sense of tonality here is consistently very modern and kind of weird right um Mm -hmm. so you know that relates to this idea of you know like uh He's, you know, he, this guy seems like a real occultist whose basic frameworks are pagan, but not in the sense of like, uh, I'm trying to recon. I'm not, I'm not in the sense of like Asatru, right? Or on mm. the goofy, or on the goofier side, not in the sense of as you memed practicing Asatru by drinking a horn at Wagen. <laughs> this is, uh, th- this is more sort of like. Right, paganism as a sort of living tradition that continues after the nominal death of paganism. Right, so there's all this medieval stuff here, um, and I, I searched for the quote. I just wanted to include it here. It was on the um, on the throne of May uh, throne of May Instagram. It's uh, right. Of course, I I ADHD'd my way off the page. Now we're back. Um, uh, Throne of May is an artist-magician-run label dedicated to a unified vision of an archaic future. It is our quest to put out music that inspires our contemporaries and supports the ongoing rebirth of mystical awareness within the modern world. Okay. Cool. 
Um, yeah. Oh, so that's just, I, are you sure you didn't write that? Is this your project, <laughs> Black Metal Guy? <laughs> exactly. It's rare I've heard something that I'm just like, <laughs> yeah, like, it, it, this is, it's rare I've heard something that I vibe with so much on, like, an ideological level, for sure. Um, but, um, yeah, so let's, th- I've spurged about that enough. Let's go to your sample. Okay. My sample, um, comes towards the end of Sunshift Apparition. And uh, for my lead-in, I will say, Haha, big Magla arpeggio go bing, bang, boong, bong. <laughs> and it's uh, it's pretty fucking sick. This is the giant climax at the end of the record. So let's do it. Cool. got a couple of big french stonkers on that part don't we <laughs> yeah yeah that that first that first riff um has the 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 sort of turnaround on the end of that super french right it's like the the most convoluted senior volant riff in the world <laughs> yeah 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 yeah, yeah. <laughs> but um, then there's a that that big arpeggio thing is that's a hundred percent mcglaw to me it could be, especially on the latest Megla, but it's also like really, I, I should have found, a, it probably lazy of me not to find a sample for it, but it really is a yellow eyes forward kind of thing. Like, okay. it's, it's it's like weird and scrub. They were doing that at about when, like Vord was doing that right when uh, With Hearts Towards None came out, like 2012. Mm, okay. um, but like, yes, it could be Megla. I mean, does he like Megla? I mean... 
I mean, we all like Megalon. <laughs> so, it's you know it's entirely possible he doesn't listen to House of First Light at all. And he's like, yeah, man, I just like Migla. Um, it's a uh, but like that's a um, no that 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 kind of even the tone like the kind of like raw chiming guitar tone and the kind of just weird like those intervals right they're all kind of too weird to be Fields of the Nephilim intervals right mm-hmm. like kind of like somewhat uncomfortable tra- like like arpeggios but like yeah it works also like a big a big migla thing and then um i mean how many sick riffs are in that passage how many sick riffs are on this record 